Here we are in the Writers and Illustrators of the Future Lounge at the Author Services Building in Hollywood. It contains a gallery of the writer and illustrator judges, a selection of the awards the contests have received, a library containing novels and art books published by winners and judges, and a selection of photos of some of our beloved keynote speakers and guests. For nearly four decades, Elwin Hubbard's Writers of the Future contest has discovered and nurtured a steady stream of new authors and artists who have changed the face of science fiction. Chosen by an impressive panel of judges, drawn from the biggest names in the genre, contest winners are given the best possible foundation for a long-standing career. Now in its third year, the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast continues to provide advice and tips from contest judges, industry professionals, and contest winners for writers and artists wanting to take their next step, along with needed inspiration to keep on going. If you are already a regular listener of this podcast, I thank you. If you are new to it, I welcome you to the weekly installment of the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast. This is John Goodwin, your host. Hello, and welcome to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast. This is John Goodwin, your host. This podcast is dedicated to the aspiring writer and artist, and will provide inspiration and tips from top professionals in the field. Today's guest is James Rassone. James is the Amazon top 100 best-selling author of military thriller and science fiction stories. And I've read in both genres there, and I'm hard-pressed to say which one I like better, but we're going to get into that over the next hour. He's an Iraq War veteran who served three and a half years in a combat zone as a military interrogator and contractor. Now, I listened to Monroe Doctrine and just yesterday completed Into the Stars. So I feel I'm up to speed on your writing now, James. So... Welcome. It's good to, good to be with you, and it's great an opportunity to talk with you guys and share some insights to aspiring writers and listeners who want to know more. Yeah, and I think it's it's, it's fascinating. I love. I've done lots of interviews with uh, writers and artists who have either been team writers, or in one case with Leo and Diane Dillon, um, as a husband and wife team. And she just uh, Diane, her husband passed away uh, several years ago, but. Uh, she wrote an, an essay for this year's Writers of the Future called The Third Artist and how they independently were amazing artists, but working together, it was a third. They had to have agreements and stuff like that, what to do, and that became like the third artist. So I guess to begin with, so you're a, a military writer and science fiction. Which came first? Well, I originally started writing in the, the military thriller side. That's where I originally started out with. And then... I've always been an avid sci-fi reader, though. I've, I've enjoyed that. I like that genre. Um, and I just I just hadn't, I didn't start writing. When I first got into writing, everyone says, write what you know and know what you write. And at the time, I really did like reading um, military thrillers. And I honestly wasn't seeing what I wanted to read. Yeah. And that's when it included me, well, why don't I write the kinds of books I want to read? And that's kind of how it took off. That's amazing. Now, like I said in the in the intro there, you've got three and a half years military in the Iraq war. So now, is that your full stint in the military or were you already 20 years in the military leading up to that three and a half years and then been there, done that, and then went to become a writer? Yeah, so when I was 18, um, like most 18 year olds, I didn't know what I wanted to do with life, uh, kind of floundering around a little bit after graduating high school. And I originally was looking at joining the Marines and lo and behold, they were out to lunch. So I started talking with an army recruiter and at the time, my uncle was in- So literally the, out to lunch. Yeah, literally out to lunch. <laughs> okay, yeah, 
for me, my uncle was also a, um, a full-time um, National Guardsman. Uh, so he worked full-time at the Army. That was his, his full-time job. And he started telling me about the Guard. And he says, you know, why don't you just, why don't you join uh, this unit here? Because uh, th this way you can at least get your college paid for and pursue that. And if you still want to become, uh, go full-time military, then you can go as an officer because you'll finish your college. I thought that was a good, good idea, good suggestion. So that's the route I went. So my first six years in the military, I joined the Wisconsin Army National Guard um, in 90, 1996, and that allowed me to uh, pursue and, and taste the, the military if I wanted to, to go that route full time, while at the same time finishing my college and, and being able to get paid for. And then when I was doing a semester in uh, Munich, Germany during 9-11, uh, that's when you know the, the terrorist attacks happened. I was in Munich at the time when that happened. And that kind of like rechanged my focus. I decided I wanted to go full time um, when I finished college at, at that point. And so I should have, I, I didn't go army, go figure. I decided to swap over and I went to Air Force instead. And then that led me down, a, you know, I, I was in the Air Force for four years and went into the interrogation route. And then I, I got out and proceeded to continue working in government though for many years afterwards. Got it. So at what point did the writing bug fully envelop you? Oh man, so the first time I ever conceived writing a book, it actually wasn't necessarily about fiction. Um, I was in the interrogation training course at Fort Huachuca, and I joked with some of my, my fellow airmen, I was like, you know, I'm gonna write a book about this. And I was like, no, you're not, no, don't you dare, you know, it's a common phrase. And when I was in the war, I, I kept a, a journal of what was going on, just as a decompression way for me to remember things and you know, have something to tell my, my kids when I get older. And when I came home, I decided, you know what, why don't I turn this journal into a book? And so we, we, we wrote the first book was Dinner with a Terrorist and published that with a, a small imprint um, who we thought was great and would do everything for us. They did not. Um, and many years, we just kind of gave up on it. And then I got really got serious into writing when I was talking with one of the, the VA counselors and she was telling me, you know, you like reading. Um, you do a lot of writing with, with Oxford because I was in graduate school at the time at Oxford. And she suggested, you know, why don't you look at writing? It's great therapy and just start doing that. And so that kind of born the idea of writing books that I would want to read and moving in that direction. And then I discovered Kindle, you know, Kindle Unlimited and be able to publish things through that, that Amazon platform in 2015. And that's when we published our first book was December 31st of 2015. And your first book was? Our first book was um, was called uh, Prelude to World War III. Um, I looked at it and said, well, you know, how do you, what, what would a war of the future look like in the 2030s? And that's kind of what we, we kind of went with that direction. So then when you went into and wrote the Monroe Doctrine, mm -hmm. so, so that was, where was that in the, in the scheme of your writing journey so that, that's my current series right now that's what i'm i'm currently writing in that series we just released the fifth book on, in that series uh this past friday i've got uh, at least two more on deck for it um i might do a, a an eighth book it really depends on how the story kind of develops and how well we can close things off in, in the, the remaining two books because i've learned as an author over time i'm not going to restrict myself and say i have to finish the series in x number of books or I want to make it just string on forever. You never want to do either of those things. You want the story to come to a natural conclusion that leaves a satisfactory um, conclusion for all parties. Uh -huh. or as close to that as you can. And 
that's what I'm really uh, striving to achieve with this this novel, this series. Yeah. So now that brings up the point then, because so I read Monroe, Volume One of Monroe Doctrines. So that that takes place in the is it the 2020s or is it 2040s? Yeah, yeah, 2020s. 2020s. Yeah. Now you've also got in the 2040s. There's another war. Well, this was a different series, so that was a completely different series. When we okay, that's when I. Yeah, no, like, point, I've got five series that I'm going on. You know, I, I'm quite a prolific writer, and so we just, you know, we, we work our way through them, and each series tends to be more of a, of a, a forward-looking cautionary tale of what could or couldn't happen, and just kind of wargaming it out, so to speak. Yes, because when I when I then when I asked you, so what should I read on on science fiction, and uh, so then you. You know, gave me to um, to read yeah, into the stars. Yeah. Into the, yeah, sorry. When you gave, had me read into the stars, you refer you referred back to the World War Three, which I thought was a series. I was the first one I was reading, and Monroe Doctrine. But then there was another one in between because you're talking about the 2040s. Yeah, that was our first one. Yep, yep. We we've gone that scenario and route quite a few times, just really looking at how do these things occur. You know, they we stumble into wars all throughout history. Mm -hmm. But if you really research it, you look back at military history, it looks like you're stumbling into it, but there's always a lot of precursors that led to it. And if we can get good at identifying what some of those things are, then perhaps we can find better ways to avoid those things happening. And so that's kind of how I, I look at it and say, okay, well, looking at this mentally, where do I see things um, happening and occurring? Yeah, that's that's interesting because when I read the first book, I was like, "Whoa, this is intense!" <laughs> it was intense. Yeah. Both of them are intense that I read, but then, then I really got what you're trying to do. There is give like a worst case scenario and just give you this is something that you know. Look at guys, this could actually happen, and here's something you can look at and decide. Let's avoid this. Let's do something now to prevent this scenario from from happening it seems right. like what you're really trying to do there exactly when i when i was working um for u.s european command in stuttgart germany for a number of years in the early 2010s um one of the sections that i that was in our intel group was called deep futures and one of the things they would look at is future conflicts you know what are the things the technologies the the issues the things we're going to need to be concerned about in 20 and 30 and 40 years from now that are going to impact us now. So we should start looking at um, strategies, that different things we could put in place to um, address or mitigate those things. You know, whether it's uh, population demographics, you know, aging population means you have a finite window to accomplish militarily your objectives um, that you want to do, or it's resources. And that's not always like oil. I mean, it thinks about energy and oil, but one of the actual bigger resources to worry about is, is actually water and arable land for crop growing. And so where are those kinds of conflicts uh, going to likely take place? And how do you mitigate that? How do you prevent that kind of stuff? Yeah, it was, um, I was fascinated in, in your, in the different way that things played out in your, you know, in the Monroe Doctrine. And uh, you also, I mean, you write, um, you end the novel, you sort of tie it up but you mostly leave a cliffhanger that makes you, oh gosh, now what? So you definitely pull something along. So you, you take a long story and you break it into, as you're developing it, in, into the 
segments that can start change and stop but then it obviously okay so now what so then you have to read the next one so you've got that especially for me the last one i just finished uh listening to into the stars it was like oh man i because <laughs> <Yeah>. i <laughs> like I, I already read a lot you know and so now i have to prepare for the next podcast i'm getting ready right now i'm interesting enough i'm reading my life as a 10 year old boy getting ready to interview Nancy Cartwright, who's the voice of Bart Simpson, okay. and that whole thing there. So um, it's a way different story. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, and, and some writers like to write where it is one large book and, and, and that's it. I'm not opposed to that kind of writing. And I read a lot of books like that. For me, I like to tell really big stories that, are, that have a lot of complex layers to it. And, and essentially create like an onion. So every book we're unraveling more and more layers to the onion until eventually we, we, we get that conclusion. And when we're looking at what we've written with the Monroe Doctrine series, where we're talking about artificial intelligence and machine learning and the automation of warfare and the different geopolitical angles and things that are happening, you can't tell that kind of a story in any you know, level of detail in a singular book. Um, Unless it's really big. Yeah, by allowing yourself the opportunity to to write in a series, you're you're able to create you're able to create that situation where we can unravel this. We can see this whole thing played out. Like, what does it mean when we move to using um, autonomous combat aircraft in in future warfare? How will that revolutionize the battlefield? And one of the big concerns is you're making warfare more and more detached from humanity, detached from the operators and what's going on. Yeah, and depersonalized. Yeah, it blurs the lines. That's a very big concern. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, now your writing process. I'm fascinated with how you write with your wife. And like I mentioned at the outset, I've done some interviews with uh, with writing teams. And then even Adrian Riddle, you know, with his... I mean, his wife doesn't write Anne Riddle, but A is Anne and G is Jerry. Um, they're, they're writing team, and she these have dis- distinctive hats that they do. But now, you with your with your wife, how does that work? Well, at first, it was very complicated. I won't lie and say that it was easy. There was a lot of bumps <laughs> on the roads and a lot of arguments and fights, and eventually we settled down and came to uh, a resolution of okay, this is what I'm really good at. This is what you're really good at. Let's focus on those areas, delineate those lines, and then let's execute moving forward. So on my end, I really handle the content creation, the research, the writing, and I just go with it there. And when I finish the book, I hand it off to Miranda, and then she'll go in it, and she, she'll she add in different aspects to the characters and personalities. She may write, I may have specific scenes I ask her to write or characters, and then she kind of helps to cinch all that together and helps make sure that I'm not being too verbose in my uh, my writing and helps me be a little more concise because I sometimes will explain too much and she'll take what I explained and chop it down to three sentences. That's like, oh, okay, I guess it works too. Um, and I just didn't see it. But she's really good at that. And then yeah. while she's doing that, though, I'm already working on the subsequent book in the series. So I don't have to slow down. My mind just continues to stay in the story while she works on, on that piece. And then when she's done, it goes to our editor. And then I hand off book two, and then Miranda starts on book two. The editor has book one, and I'm on book three. And it's literally a production cycle. And once the cycle's really going, as long as we don't have any major hiccups, 
it just stays rolling. And it's, it's going to a pace now where I've written at this point 26 books, I think. So my drafts are substantially better um, than what they were a while ago. So now we're actually reversed a little bit where the book goes from me directly to the editor, then from the editor back to Miranda, and then Miranda handles all of the, the developmental, conceptual development of the, from, from our editor, tightens everything thing up, and then it goes back to the editor for a second round. And she handles that whole piece while I continue to work on creating the next books. But that was a five-year process to get to that evolution. And once we reached that, that actually shortened our production time probably by about uh, six to eight weeks, which means instead of struggling to, to, to get you know three and four books a year out, which is still great, mm-hmm. uh, we're now actually able to, to pick up probably between a fifth and sixth book. Um, but again, it's because we have a, a whole study pipeline of these things coming. It wasn't an overnight thing. It was years of building and, and getting it going and, and just having a steady pipeline of books that are in various stages of construction and writing and editing and then just staying on top of everything. I get it. So then on your um, writing, because you've got military thriller, you've got science fiction. Those are the two I'm familiar with, and perhaps you've got more now as well. Yeah, stick with those, just those. <laughs> okay, so... Do you have any problem uh, like sw- switching gears or is it a matter of switching gears? Uh, no, I do have problems with switching gears. I'm not going to lie about that. Um, this is uh, the, the, the sci-fi series is my first endeavor into, into that realm. So it, it is a little bit of a struggle there. So what I found works is like right now, I just finished Monroe Doctrine book five. So I'd written four and five. I've paused now that series and now I'm spending essentially the next six months where I'm gonna be working on the sci-fi series. And so what I'll do is I'll go back and I'll either read the previous book we just published to get my mindset back into that realm again, look Mm -hmm. at the draft and outline to make sure we're still moving moving along, and then I roll right into the next book, and then I stay in that world for at least two books. If I have time, I'll do a third. Before I pause again, um, I make sure I have a long enough pre-order to cover the distances, and then I I roll back to to the thriller side and. I repeat that process and, and kind of make that work. I get it. Now your science fiction definitely has thriller, you know, oh, yeah. throughout yeah. it. You yeah. definitely are like, you know, I got to turn the thing. Okay. So what happens now? And then when I saw the ending coming, okay. I said, okay, here it's coming. It's yeah, that's it. Yep. <laughs> yeah, we are the master of being able to do that. Cause what we've learned with Amazon is they allow you to set up pre-orders, which is great. Now there was a time when Amazon made it only 90 days. Now it's rough. Uh, they've now extended that to a year, which makes it a lot more manageable. So when we conclude book one or book two, we always make sure that the, the pre-order for the next book is up. And then that link is in the end of the ebook. Um, and what that doubt, what that allows you to do as a self-published author is it allows you to hopefully carry the reader over from one book to the subsequent book, which as a, an indie writer, you know, we have to handle all the marketing ourselves. So you've got to think cleverly, how do I manage that? How do I grow uh, my readership base while retaining my existing readers? This is the critical strategy to making that work. And then when a series ends, having book one of the new series, that pre-order link ready to go is also critically important because then you transition the reader from one series and they roll right into the next series. Got it. But now you've got like three series going? I have, two, I have two active series that I'm going. 
And then about two years ago, because I got into writing as a PTSD therapy, um, I, I started wondering how else can I help other vets get into this? And so two years ago, my wife and I decided we would take on a couple of, of military vets and mentor, mentor them in becoming a writer and being able to eventually create a business that they can uh, run full time and be able to support them and their families and allows them to to work around those good and bad days and, and be able to, to still do that and have a, a good life to, to support your family with, not have to, Otherwise, you just really struggle. And they, they do have some good options for, for helping you with this, but a lot of the options are unfortunately also going to leave you, your head in a bit of a cloud sometimes. And yeah. that makes working full-time very challenging because I struggle with that a lot. But your creative juices are definitely flowing. Um, so now on, since the book I just finished, Into the Stars, your uh, aliens that you come up with, they're nine feet tall and they're serious badass. I mean, they're like mega. Um, it was interesting. I, one of the uh, books that the author that I published, Elrond Hubbard wrote is called Battlefield Earth. Yep. And it's, it, that type of stuff is very similar to the Cyclos, which are the, the big badass aliens of, of that, of that uh, novel. Have you, are you familiar with that book? I am familiar with the book and I've also seen the, the movie a number of years ago when it came out. Um, I, I liked it. I liked the approach. I liked the angle and how they did that. Yeah. I think if I, so this series that I wrote is kind of a, a conglomeration of several, several things that are sci-fi really. For me, I was a huge, when I was in Iraq and shortly after, um, I was really big into a, 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 an MMO game called EVE Online. And that was a really cool interactive sandbox of just space and being able to have, you know, businesses and military alliances and fighting. It was a lot of fun to play with people from all over the world. I enjoyed that. So I derived, I found some creative um, relevance from there uh, for the series. And then I also kind of liked some of the aspects of, uh, of Battlestar Galactica and looking at, at, at that and, you know, the Star Stargate SG-1 series and, and just a handful of these things. To me, all of that was amazing to see all that and say, you know, what elements can I pull from different things and how can I make it better or unique or more applicable to say the 2090s, the 20, early 2021s, because that's where our series takes place. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to do this, you know, two, 3,000 years in the future. I want it to be somewhat near term where we are going to have um, reference points. You know, it's pretty safe to say we're probably going to have SpaceX or something along those lines in Blue Origin around in 2090. That's not that mm -hmm. far away when you think about it. We're talking right. 20, or what, uh, you know, that's Less 70 years for 2090. Yeah, you know, we're not talking very far away. So right. this will likely be still around and involved, and we can relate to that. And as a reader, the more things you can create that people kind of relate to and associate, identify with, the more they kind of, oh, I get that. Yeah, I understand that. And, and they have those immediate reference points, and it's, it's so much easier for them to get involved and dive right into it. Yeah, because you've got some stuff that you put in there, uh, like Monroe Doctrine. You've got like the offering all the Skynet for free, you know, but why that was done, you know, what's, what's, what's on the other side of that one. Reason why it's done. There's a reason why it's done. It's like Facebook. Facebook's free. You yeah. think what they're able to do with the information that you are willing to put on there, they are able to repackage and market and sell for substantial sums of money. It's same yeah. with Google. When you use a Google, when you're using Google, you exact same thing, um, all that stuff. It's not free. It's, it's, 
giving them the ability to collect information they can repackage and sell to marketers. You know, so that's that's what it all comes down to. Yeah, absolutely. And then obviously all the uh, the AI, what how that's all going, and mm-hmm. your greatest fears. And Elon Musk makes his comments about it right now. You know, his fears of of letting AI go unchecked, and you take it where it is not checked. You know, and what happens. We have to anticipate that no matter the, we all come up with these great intentions. We have good intentions for doing this project or that project. And that's wonderful. And, that, and that's what we should all strive for and why we should move forward in those things. But we also can't discount the fact that, you know, man is a depraved creature and there are going to be individuals who will use this technology and as an, as an exploit, whether it's to create unheard of wealth for themselves while fleecing the consumer and everyone else or it's to consolidate and grab power. And we don't know which way that goes. And that's dependent on who is in control of what at what times. And AI is going to be no different and either is automation and everything else. And so I think it's kind of neat for us to explore that and talk about that and just give people an insight as to what could happen. Yeah. It's, um, that was, that was very like, um, wow. It really makes one look at it and just at the beginning, it was just horrific. And then just looking at it and just, okay, I see what I'm tracking with this now. And now it'll be a lot easier to address the rest of the books here. Cause it was, it's, it's such a, a raw look at what could actually happen. And the fact is when you got AI, it does not have inherently any yeah. sense of morality, any sense of compassion is right. all a program trait or not. Yeah. It is about objectives. You're, you've given it a task to complete a task. And mm-hmm. that task results in the death of one person, no people, or a million people. It doesn't really matter to the machine. All it sees is a task. And so it's devoid of that, which makes it the ultimate, you know, the ultimate killing machine, if you will. But it's mm-hmm. also a very scary future if that kind of stuff evolves unchecked and isn't even thought about or discussed. And I think the more we more books that come out, the more movies that come out that discuss this, that talk about it, it starts to seed ideas where we begin to question, is this really the route we want to go? Or if it is, how do we build in safeguards to ensure we don't end up in that kind of a future? Yeah, but like in your book, you've also got, in the Monroe Doctrine, you've also got this naive concept that, no, 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 it won't happen to me. It won't happen to us. No, it's, that's not going to happen because you become so uh, channel visioned on what you see is going to be outcome of this that you don't look at other possibilities. Okay. Or worse, we don't consider the second and third order effects of decisions. And that's a big thing that we always put in a lot of the books is if when you do X, Y is going to happen and then Z is going to happen next. And when we make decisions and we don't think about the consequences of those decisions, they have ripple effects. And, mm-hmm. you know, I always you know, discuss the whole you know, the Ukraine war and situations going on there, but there are consequences to sanctions. And we are starting to see those consequences where, you know, Lebanon had just, you know, talked about having food insecurity and being in a food crisis before the end of May. Well, that's the, that's the first domino to fall in this whole, you know, the, the whole sanctions regime. So, you know, decisions have consequences. Um, yeah. It may be well-intended, and we may support that, but we also have to acknowledge there are going to be consequences to those. And are we ready for them? And did we contemplate them before we institute them? And so I like to put that in a lot of the books and what we're talking about, what we're doing. 
It's interesting that you mentioned that because we recently had our Writers of the Future uh, Awards Gala for volume um, 38. And our keynote speaker was Lieutenant General uh, J.T. Thompson, USAF. He just retired, um, but he was one of the ones instrumental in creating the Space Force. And he, when he spoke, he talked about specifically the importance of science fiction writers for this very reason. He said, you know, we have our own concepts of, what's, of what needs to be done and what the outcome will be, but we need you to look at all the different angles that we wouldn't necessarily see right. on a decision. We need to have those other perspectives that we won't have. And it's interesting because a lot of the um, authors of the golden age were themselves in World War II. They were um, uh, rocket scientists of, you know, at the, in the middle of the 20th century, developing a lot of what, of what became known now as, as the Air Force and what led to um, the rocketry going into space. And they're the ones who had the ear of Washington, D.C. at that time period, because they wanted to like, what do we do? Where do we go? What, what are the various alternates that we have to, to deal with? And I know that um, Owen Hubbard and Robert Heinlein and a few others met after World War II as Korea was beginning to escalate and potentially was going to lead an, to an immediate third world war. Yeah. And they said, we need to do something. They say, started writing science fiction to create a space race. Because yeah. at that point, the arms race was really heating up. And so they created a space race to get man's attention off of fighting each other instead of um, let's tackle the unknown out there as something that we could all go to um, agree with. And what you did in your book, uh, uh, Into the Stars, it did just that. You know, yeah. it just, we just finished, you know, and it was like still all this conflict you had at that point in the three basic governments on Earth but there was still this animosity and that tension was always there. But then when this came up as a bigger foe than any of their own internal conflicts, they then were all able to unite. Yeah. yeah. And then after read book two, but otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. By design, that's how it works. But yeah, no, you're right. And that's, you know, that's the whole unique thing. And that's one of the things that I, I wish as a country and as, as humanity, we could, we could come together around these, these massive projects that, that could really propel us forward. You know, Elon Musk talks about going to Mars and being able to move forward in that direction. Right. Imagine if we had a 1960s you know, style man to the moon race and we were able to come up with some sort of national program like that, that focused on establishing the, the gas station on the moon we need, the orbital infrastructure we need to build the ships and getting out to Mars and put our focus and attention on there instead of divisive issues that we end up getting cycled into all the time and find commonalities. Those are all things that we can come together and agree on. Even if we disagree on everything else, we can come together on something like this. And that's how we start to bridge the divides between, between different people. And we, we, we move forward in a much more, a much better way, I suppose. Yeah. You put together, you establish an accord in your book that, Worked out how you know as plants were dis habitable plants were discovered, yeah. who was able to claim rights to that versus when they had to be in a, in a serious system when they had to be shared. You know, um, yeah, it's, it's interesting because Operation Treaty we come up with it where everyone shares technology that they develop to collectively work together for for a common good. Exactly. Yeah. 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 There's a um, Conquest of Space series that 
that Hubbard wrote in the in the forties and fifties about how it was actually finally uh, accomplished, and it was through privatization. Yeah, you know that's where you got your Elon Musk and your Jeff Bezos and the other companies that actually went out there and and took the bull by the horns and actually and made it happen. And there, his the organization which handled assigning of of discovered planets was the Explorers Club, because it was non, because he was a member of, he was, he was one of the more storied members of the Explorers Club and it wasn't political. So yeah. they could then work out and they kept all the registry there. So when somebody discovered a planet, then it would be registered to that, that country as they went out there. So it was because it being non-political in nature, they could do that. And there went, there was no favoritism on that. Yeah. Obviously it didn't happen, but, uh, or at least it hasn't happened yet. And haven't yet. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm just curious, have, are you familiar with any of, of Hubbard's uh, fiction works? Like I say, I read the Battlefield Earth one a, a while back. And so yeah. I enjoyed that um, and seeing, seeing how he created the world. Um, yeah. He, what I like to do is I like to read different authors and, and just try to figure out how do they how do they come up with this? What what do they use to describe you know an alien creature? How do you describe a planet that we've never been to and seen? Because it's very difficult to describe something you want to have never seen before, but then actually put it into um, into a book format that makes sense, that people right. readily identify with and visualize it in their own mind. And then you'll be able to move forward with that, that story, with that idea in mind. And that's a never ending learning process as a writer is figuring it out. And you got to find writers who are very good at that and then try to dissect, well, how do they do this? What do they do? So that requires reading a broad spectrum of writers and, and different genres and I, to, to get these, these different ideas. Yeah, it was interesting. I recently interviewed Hugh Howey, and he, he read Belfort eight times because it's just it's one of his favorite science fiction stories. And um, Brandon Sanderson, when I interviewed him a while ago, he talked about it was just the action, you know, being able to pick up the action. And Kevin Anderson, who also, he's, very well known for all the Doom prequels. And there was the short sentences versus the long sentences to create that pacing. You know, some of the ways that these, that the old masters used to do to, to create pacing and how you can slow story down with making this, the sentences and paragraphs longer than making short again. And just like, just like, yes. you know, as you're getting through the, the story, cause the action is so intense and you've really, you know, you've developed that well. And like I said, by the end of the, the first book, you know, Monroe Doctrine, I said, okay, good. He's, you've got, you know, you really got your pacing going on that. Mm-hmm. But I realized I'm doing a podcast on Rise to the Future, so I need to read some science fiction too. So I wrote to you saying, so what do you got science fiction? And then you said, Into the Stars. Okay, good. Switch it's gears, like going to that right one now. there. <laughs> and I got two series I'm stuck in the middle of. And then not, I won't say that stuck. I was just like, I'm totally in the middle of that. I realized, okay, now what? Now what? So you've yeah. done an amazing yeah. job of that. So on the um, Rise of the Future podcast, I'm always looking for tips and suggestions yep. and, you know, for the aspiring writer. So you said you've already w- worked out and helping other uh, military, but just in general for aspiring writer, whether it's uh, military fiction or science fiction, because you say, which I can totally see with your military fiction, write what you love and love what you write, you know, um, Science fiction, it's a little bit harder to do that by the very nature of being science fiction. It depends how much science you want to put into it. Correct. Yeah. 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 
So look, please explain a little bit more on your own process of writing of how much is based on your own experience versus going to library research versus talking to, to buddies. So for me, a lot of my writing tends to be based on, on personal experiences that I've, I've been to. I've been very fortunate in the jobs that I've held in the past. I've, you know, I've worked as a, a staff officer, um, you know, with a U.S. European Command and Special Operations Command. I've been, you know, in the interrogation level and directing, you know, tier one and tier two assets to go hit objectives. So, I mean, I've been able to see that full spectrum. And whether it, I'm writing a, a sci-fi or a military thriller, the writing style is essentially the same. It's just the timeline, the time frame of when these takes place and the technology involved is what's different. But the methodology of how I write is, is, is still the same. So mm -hmm. when you're crafting any kind of series or books, the characters have got to be absolutely believable. So that means you need to take your, your head and put your, your POV, your point of view, has to be in that character's point of view. So if you write a Russian character, they have to be Russian perspective, everything. And same with an American, same with whatever the character is you're trying to choose. Um, and I think that's one of the, the critical pieces that authors and aspiring authors need to need to figure out, need to understand. You've got to make it authentic because when things are authentic, and that's when they become very real and that's when readers really grab onto it. And then, as you mentioned earlier, pacing. Pacing is very good. Uh, there's a book written uh, by Matthew Jockers called The Best Seller's Code. And I thought that was one of the, the best books I've read about the craft of writing. Because when it comes to craft, um, a book is essentially, it has a heartbeat, okay? So it's, it's like an EKG. It has your ups, your downs, your ups, your downs. And you want to have those spaced out where you have enough of an opportunity for a reader to catch their breath before you take them on the next either high or low in the roller coaster. And when you pace those things out between, usually it's about every nine to 13% of a book. That's what gives you that, that super fast paced book that people just have to keep turning the pages. And then on, I was listening on masterclass.com, it's another, ask, another resource I used to, I was listening to uh, David Baldacci talking and he very clearly articulates that the last paragraph or two of a chapter has to be really that, that that hook that grabs the reader and causes them to want to turn the page next to find out what happened. And in those first paragraphs, the first paragraph or two in the next chapter have to likewise suck them in. And when you can create that, it just goes over and over and over again. And before you mm -hmm. know it, they've, they've spent 12 hours reading the book and they're done. And of course it took you five months to write it or four months to write it, but they read it in a day or two. And that's yeah. how you create a compelling uh, bestseller. And when you do this in a series, they end up burning through the whole series. And, and that's how you make it a sustainable support, uh, business because you know, you've got to keep selling books. That's right. You absolutely need to do that. So on um, what you had to overcome yourself as an author to, to get that, you know, because not everybody starts off, okay, good. I'm going to write myself a book and here we go. You know, it's hard. <laughs> Ta-da! Not that easy. <laughs> yeah. You know, it, it really requires a lot of discipline at, at, at first because you have to understand that whether this is full-time or it's a hobby, you have to understand you've got to create a schedule, you've got to create an outline. Um, it doesn't have to be a, a strict, you know, paragraph-by-paragraph paragraph outline of what your book is, but you need to know what you're trying to do, what you're trying to achieve. And right. you've, got to, you've got to stay disciplined in what it is you're doing and then just stick to it. 
Um, if you stick with it long enough, you're going to you're going to finish the book. But if you allow perfection to paralyze your ability to complete it, then it may never get done. So you have to find a bit of a balance. And I think that's something that you learn in time and it does come with. But at the end of the day, you've got to decide that this is what I want to achieve. This is what I want to do. You know, when you go to college and it is tough, you have to say, I want to be here and I want to do this. And when you make that decision, things just start to fall in line. It doesn't make it easy, but it does give you that grit you need to get through it. Same thing for right. people that do marathons or Ironmans. You know, they have to determine I'm going to do this. And I think that's where a lot of my military training has helped me because it kind of taught me that mentality of developing stones. Okay. I don't need to write the whole book today. What I do need to focus on is I need to focus on writing one page or two pages or one scene. And when you create small inch stones, they become very easy to achieve. And as you start to achieve more and more and more, it builds a lot of confidence mentally that I can do this. And before mm -hmm. you know it, you're rolling through the book and within a month, you've got half the thing written. And that's how, that's how you develop that mindset. That's how you create that, that, that ability to just plow through and get it done. I get it. Now, do you write every day? I do write every day. I am a maniacal workaholic. I fully admit that <laughs> and embrace that. But I'm doing it for a purpose and a mission. You know, I'm, I'm 44 right now. I just turned 44 last week. And, and I don't want to be working this hard when I'm um, 60. I also want to have a comfortable retirement when I'm 60. And I still have an Oxford graduate degree to pay off. So I need to earn some money. Um, so right now, I, I view my writing business as you would any kind of startup business. There's a ramp up period for that, that's gonna last X number of years to get your catalog, so to speak, created. And mm -hmm. you've got to work on developing your, your marketing apparatus, your, your reader acquisition process, how you're gonna build a business. Because at the end of the day, we all wanna write books. But if you don't learn how to master the business aspect of being a self-published writer, you're not gonna make any money in this business because you can't just throw it up on Amazon and expect people to find it. You have to figure out, well, how do I find the audience that would be receptive to this book? It's not just about throwing $1,000 or $2,000 a month at marketing. It's saying, how do I find the right audience that's going to really enjoy this kind of book, as opposed to just finding a large audience in general and hoping someone likes it. And those are business things you learn over time um, and, and stuff that I've, I've leaned on from, from my own education at uh, Oxford Business School really taught me a lot about that piece of the puzzle. And I think that is why, you know, we have excelled where we have, you know, we've only been in this business uh, full-time writing now for, we just finished our fourth year of full-time writing. Um, and, and what we've achieved is, is really quite good considering when I first started this, you know, I'd been laid, laid off from one job and was waiting to find another in, in between finding another one. So I had no resources when I started this, I had my, my brain, and my ability to work 80 or 100 hours a week like I had in the military and in the war. And so, all right, I got the time. I got the effort. I know how to do this. I'm just going to plow through and do it. And we're, you know, we're, what, six years since we published our first book. We're four years into being full-time. We've got 26 books out. And we're, you know, we're already in the mid-six mid figures at this point. So we're, we're really working towards that seven-figure goal. And, I anticipate probably hitting that. Uh, luckily, not this year, but um, hopefully, hopefully by next year or certainly the year after. That's awesome. So then, on 
before we started talking here, you talked about a, um, the science behind bestsellers. Uh-huh. So can you touch on that a little bit? I don't, we're not, obviously not going to do a four-year program at uh, Oxford right now in this, uh, what we have left in this podcast. But No, that, that, that's easy to, to distill down. So aside from the pacing, which is really critical, mm-hmm. another piece is the focus. When your book is scattershot, like your themes, okay, the plot, the theme of the book, when you're scattershot all over the place, it's very it's challenging for a reader to understand what's going on and to follow along. So what you want to do is you want to have your book, your, your, your top two themes of your book should consist of at least 40% of what you're talking about. You know, in Monroe Doctrine, we're talking about machine learning and AI and, and, and that whole you know, future warfare aspect. That's really the heavy focus. We don't have a lot of other, other divergent avenues or, or, or strings that we're pulling out in that series. And that allows us to stay, um, allows the reader to really understand what it is we're trying to achieve because we're not mm-hmm. having it all scattershot. And that's really important. And there's a, um, there's a tool I've used um, from a company called Authors AI. Um, full disclosure, I'm, you know, I helped, I helped uh, found that company, was involved in that company when we were getting that thing going. So what we have with that is a, a, an AI algorithm that looks at manuscripts. And we have hundreds and hundreds, even probably more like thousands at this point of manuscripts in there. And we can look at all the historical bestsellers. See, okay, historically, what makes Red Storm Rising or The Hunt for Red October or The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo? Um, you know, what makes these things bestseller? I and mean, we can find those data points. And then we can look at your book and find the similar data points and see how they, how they stack up. I think that for me is, is a really unique tool that helps, that helps you figure out how do I make the book a bestseller? Because mm-hmm. we have so many writing aids and tools at our disposal. It just comes down to knowing which ones are available and how do I, how do I make it work for me? And maybe it's not, maybe that wouldn't be the right one for you, but it is for someone else. And I think that's one of the, the keys as a new writer is figuring out what will work for you and making it adaptable to you and your process and not feeling compelled that you have to pigeonhole yourself into someone else's process or someone else's way of doing it or however they go about it. You know, when a lot of people get bogged down in, in I have to create a detailed outline. No, you don't. I have the loosest of outlines with my books, but we still create the most really complex stories with a very loose outline. It doesn't have to be, you know, 50 page outline for this book you're creating. You just have to have an idea and a path of how you're going to get to that idea and then execute. Yeah. There's, I mean, I've had so many different interviews with different methods and techniques that authors have used. You got the bigs that are, Mega outliners, and you've got the from to the extreme, just pantsers. Yeah. But then, um, you know, I did the interview with Michael Anderley. He talked about beats. You know, he's got the various beats, yeah. which is similar to what you're talking about. I'm not saying that's the same thing, but it's a similar type thing. Just uh, pulse the book along so you can keep those little anchor points there to keep it on track with what you're trying to to convey. Like, here's an easy way to do that for any author. You can do this with your book right now. This is the easiest way to do this. When you look at your chapters, okay, so print out your chapters, however you want to do it. When you look, when you visually look at, say, okay, chapter one, how many scenes are in chapter one? Is it one scene? Is it three or four? How many scenes are in it? Now, it doesn't matter if there's one scene or five scenes. What matters is you need to know what they are. Once you know 
uh, how many scenes are in the chapter, then you say, okay, is this scene a dialogue scene or an action scene? Is the chapter a dialogue or action chapter? So that's going to help you identify the beats. So once you've got that down, you look and say, okay, is chapter one action? Great. Then the next two chapters of dialogue um, and then action, then dialogue, dialogue, action, 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 dialogue. You paste that out. So when you can see that, that, that laid out before you on your desk, you can say, okay, I've got an action sequence with five dialogue chapters. That's too much. So what you're going to need to do is say, okay, well, do I have too much action in another part of the book? Is it possible I can move this chapter to this other section, to, to the front of the book where there's all that dialogue to help break it up and find mm -hmm. ways to weave that around? So when you see all of that, because you could write the book as plotted out as you want. At the end of the day, when it's all done, you need to take it and look at the chapters and say, okay, is it a dialogue or an action chapter? And you got to be able to paste those things out because what you don't want to have is multiple actions of multiple chapters of action. There's no chance for the reader to breathe or to digest what's going on or even understand the whole thing. They're just going from action to action to action. But at the same time, you can't have just dialogue, dialogue, dialogue. It's boring. There's not mm -hmm. enough to keep you engaged and keep you turning the pages. So you got to find that balance. And that's where if you, when the book's done or when you're writing it out, even if you're crafting your chapters, just say, okay, this is an action chapter, dialogue, dialogue, chapter, action. And you just visually do that. And that will really, really help your book a lot. That makes sense. Now, if you'd had that occur, you finish the book and all of a sudden you go, yep. Whoa. That changes around. I've done that before. Absolutely. Uh, whether I'm looking at the book um, or I'm, or I use this the AI tool and I, I look at the report and go, whoa, that is not how I thought this thing would turn out. Let me go ahead and go back to this area here, re-engineer this around, twist some things, move it, make this work here. And lo and behold, I get the result I want. Um, I, a really good example of this, I was, I was working with one of my mentees, um, uh, Matt Jackson. He's a retired Army colonel, is a helicopter pilot in Vietnam. And we were writing, we were, we were collaborating on a, an alternate desert storm series. And when we printed this whole thing out, we looked at it and I was like, Matt, dude, these chapters, you've got too much dialogue in the front of the book. The setup was great interesting historical reading but for a non-military buff it's going to be boring so how do we move some of these action sequences around to the front and make this a much more balanced book and when he saw that he saw how we laid that out and did that it clicked and it's been an easy thing for him to pick up and do with his books going forward now and and that's something i'm teaching with you know with the three other vets that i'm mentoring right now is is how do you identify these things and then be able to re move your books around, move your chapters around to make it work. Um, and that's how you, it's just using some more of the science and more aspects of how do you make the book better? Because at the end mm -hmm. of the day, the reader is the ultimate um, determinant of whether your book's a success or not. If yeah. you write this beautiful opus and the readers read it and they go, wow, I just lost, you know, six hours of my life or 10 hours of my life. <laughs> Now, that doesn't have to end your career. What you need to do, though, is you need to do an autopsy and say, okay, this sucks. What did I do wrong, and how do I fix this? And then take those lessons learned from that failure and move forward with the next book. You know, when we complete a series, because we've now, we have three completed series, we have two current series that we're working on. I look at that series and say, okay, what did we do right? What did we do wrong? How do I adjust the next series we're going to start? Because what I want to do is every series, I want to be better and better and better than the previous one based on 
the real world results from the readers, from the consumers uh, that they said of the previous one. And that's allowed every series we write to continue to be better and better and better. Um, and then again, as a business, you're, you're fully employed. And it's not paying my mortgage and my steel loans. You're going to start seeing better business success from that. And ultimately, that's what's going to keep you writing for the next 10, 20, 30 years. I get it. Have you ever written short fiction? I haven't. I've thought about doing it. I have a, a short sci-fi I wrote, go figure, it's almost like a horror, alien horror one where these people are <laughs> station on, you know, on the moon. And it was gaming. It's what it was a gaming project I was calling it. And they're pulling out minerals and resources and doing samples and then some kind of like ooze comes out and, you know, it ends up getting on someone's, you know, someone's hands or whatever and starts to take them over and takes over the rest of the crew. And then the other person's up in space and they're like, oh my God, what's happening to the people down there? And they're like, you know, I'm not letting them on the ship and they leave, you know, but it didn't really explore it out too much. I think it got to maybe 10,000 words. And, you know, I thought about doing some more shorts, maybe doing some things like that. It's challenging because I'll, I'll admit as a business, as a business model, those are very, very difficult to make profitable. Um, right. Because there's not a lot of, you can only charge a certain amount of money for those kinds of shorts. You know, if you're charging a dollar ninety nine, ninety eight cents, a two ninety nine, you're talking about making very, very little per book, and that's an opportunity cost involved in creating that. So if that took you a month to create that, how much, how much did that technically cost you, and then how are you going to recover that cost? So shorts, they're kind of fun. I would like to do them. But from a business standpoint, financially, I don't think I'm in the position yet to do that. When I have maybe five or six completed series and I have a backlist that is earning a certain dollar amount, um, at that point, I will I can take a little more of a risk. But until mm -hmm. I'm in a position where I can afford to take a risk like that, I need to stay focused on the, the sure bets that, that will produce, that will um, have a reader and will be able to support us. Okay, good. Now... Did you ever try going traditional route and then just? We did. I've tried traditional a couple times and been turned down several times. It's ironic because both series that we were turned down on made substantial sums of money. Um, yeah. Series they're like, no, nah, we don't really like this. We don't. We don't see this. this we don't see a market for this. But series made almost four hundred thousand dollars the following year when I released it myself. So I begged to differ with them that there wasn't a market for it. They just didn't have the eyesight to see it. Um, yeah. Maybe it wasn't the market that they thought was there. And I'm all about finding little niches in genres that aren't being explored. Um, with our military stuff, nobody, everyone writes about the special forces, the lone wolf, the little action, things like that. Nobody writes about, you know, brigade, you know, tank brigade versus tank brigade, division versus division, the big stuff, the stuff that Tom Clancy did in Red Storm Rising. So when we did that, there were no one, there was no one else doing it. It was just us in a book that came out 30 years ago. So suddenly we were the only ones doing it. And that meant everyone was reading it who was interested in that. There was no competition. Mm -hmm. And so we've stayed in that vein with that. And I think that's worked out really well. And again, I had the same thing with the sci-fi. They're like, well, we don't really think this would be a, a good seller and whatnot. Well, you know, the three books made over made almost $200,000 on three books in a year. So I beg to differ again. I'm kind of struck by why they look at these things and they go, well, I don't really think this will do well. And it's like, well, I've got a pretty good proven record at this point of creating books that will sell and do well. What is it about that, that history you're not liking? So 
I, I don't know that I'll ever go traditionally published. Um, I, I may just stay with the, the indie side. Um, I'll be frank, I, I would be open to it because I would like to not have to handle and deal with so much of the marketing. I've become very good at it, um, but that's because I've put a lot of time into learning it. And I recognize that if I don't do this, if my uh, business isn't going to succeed and do as well. And yeah, so this last area I'd like to be able to address then is that very thing. And so you're a marketer and to make it an indie yourself, you can't survive unless you do have your wits around mm -hmm. marketing. Yep. So a little bit about that and then we'll, then we'll get into our closing questions here. Sure. Yeah. So, all right, as a marketer, you can write the best book in the world, but if nobody reads it, it's not going to do well. And you can write a garbage book that everyone reads and make a fortune. So it comes down to eyeballs on books. And when you're, when you're developing your marketing campaign, you've you got to have one, you got to have a good product to sell. Visually, it's got to be appealing. So that comes down to having a professional book cover that is really um, tied to that genre, very genre specific because that's what that consumer wants. And then it comes down to the book description. A book description is supposed to be hooks, grab the reader, entice them into wanting to learn more. That is not a book synopsis. A synopsis gives the reader no reason to buy the book because you just told them all about what's going to happen, how they know, when you buy the book. So there's learning the differences between those. And once you've got that, then it comes down to identifying what is your audience? Who is the core audience that is going to want your book? And then figure out, well, where does this core audience reside? Are they on Pinterest? Are they on Instagram? Are they on WhatsApp, um, you know, TikTok? Are they on Facebook? Where are they? Once you figure that out, now you know where to direct your limited marketing dollars because we all have finite resources. So when I first started out, I didn't have a lot of money for marketing, so I had to be very targeted in where I was going. So initially I was using Facebook. And then as I've grown and developed and Facebook has become less effective for my genre and audience, I've transitioned very heavy to Amazon. And now it's about understanding the keywords and what's going after on how to, how to grab uh, the right audiences with that. And so even when you're marketing on Amazon, as an indie author, there are two, there are two functions here, right? There's Kindle Unlimited and there are unit sales. So if you're exclusive to Amazon, meaning you're not wide, you're not anywhere else, you're only available on Amazon, then you're in Kindle Unlimited. And that means you're going to get paid when people download your book and they do a page swipe. So every time they swipe the page, you're getting paid a fractional of a penny or whatever it is. Uh, which again is why short stories are very hard to make profitable and can eliminate because you don't make you make like pennies on the book. But when you have that, you you've got to understand this is where all the indie authors fail is they don't understand that there are still two audiences you're trying to target. There are the Kindle Unlimited readers, people who are in that membership who only read books in Kindle Unlimited, and then there are paid consumers, and they're different audiences. So if your ads are only being directed and aimed at a Kindle Unlimited reader, you're only going to get largely Kindle Unlimited um, page reads on your books as opposed to sales. Whereas if you focus on, on the reader who is buying the books, you're going to get a lot more book purchases as opposed to book downloads. So a lot of guys and, and people in, in that are writing, that are self indie writers, when you ask them that, they'll really they'll tell you that most of their income comes from between 70 to 80% of their money is from Kindle Unlimited. I mean, people are downloading the book, reading it, and they're getting paid on page swipes. That is a long-term unsustainable business to be in, though, 
because every year that percentage drops every year uh, because of the number of people who are uh, number of authors signing up for it in comparison to the number of readers signing up for it, it continues to dwindle. So you've got to figure out how do I find the paying readers? So in my case, what I do, I target uh, traditional published authors, traditionally published books. And the reason I do that is because the Mark Camerons, the, you know, the, the Kyle Mills readers, you know, that read the Vince Lynn and, and, and the Tom Clancy genre style books, they're accustomed to paying $14.99 for an ebook or $24.99 for a print book. So I'm targeting them and my book is $7.99 and my print book is $4.99. I'm substantially cheaper than them, but I'm also a lot higher than most self-published writers. But that's allowed me to have my, my income balance where most of my revenue still is actually purchases and not Kindle Unlimited downloads, even though I, my books are in Kindle. And that's a very unique strategy that I don't think a lot of um, self-published authors recognize or are caught on to um, when, they're, when they're driving into the marketing realm, because it is very challenging. This is challenging. I spend probably, uh, I probably spend 20, 20 hours a week or so at least on understanding the marketing, looking at the trends, the data, figuring out where I need to shift resources, where I need to focus on. Um, and that's time that takes away from writing. You know, so if I spend uh, 20 hours on reading and research, 20 hours on marketing, well, that's 40 hours right there. And then I've got, you know, however many hours I want to devote to writing. So that may be another 40 right there. So that's an 80 hour, you know, work week. It sounds like a lot, but when you spread it across uh, seven days, I don't have a commute to go anywhere. Um, I can have my two-year-old come in and get a hug and I can take a break and watch 20 minutes of Paw Patrol with her and go back to work. It's not mm -hmm. so bad. You know, it sounds terrible, but when you add in the interruptions and little little breaks you take, it's, it's manageable and it's not as bad as it sounds. Well, that's great. Well, that's really good. That's really good data because like getting how you do it and then also the managing of your own marketing actions and research actions versus your writing it, it's the whole package and if somebody's that that um field of dreams is not a legitimate um scenario to anticipate you put it through they will come yeah, no you, you they won't depend on luck you need to go create your own luck and we are so blessed to live in the time frame we are in with the technologies and tools that are available to us because we have that opportunity if i wanted to be a writer 20 years ago this would not have been possible i wouldn't be a writer if i was living 20 years ago I wouldn't have had access to Kindle to, to Amazon self-publishing platform or mm -hmm. the marketing tools that are available. I just wouldn't have. And that is an is an unprecedented door that's been made open to all of us who are aspiring to be writers and want to do this full time. Because there are plenty of us writers who are very good in this business, who make a large chunk of money in this business on Amazon, who have been continually rejected by traditionally published by the publishing houses and by agents. And, but we would have never been able to sell these books and share these ideas and, and have these, these awesome careers if we didn't have this opportunity that Amazon's given us and pursued it, you know, right. willing to take that risk. Cause this is a risk. I'm betting the farm every time I start a new series that the reader is going to enjoy this series and like it. And if I bet wrong, if I do this wrong, I jeopardize, you know, my future going forward. My business will survive. And we made a massive, big critical flaw 
in um, one of our book series, when we had this killer series, we transitioned to a new one. And I really screwed that up. I had the wrong book cover. It read for it read as a nonfiction as opposed to a fiction. And I just did it wrong. And that series hurt us really bad for about 18 months. And we, you know, I had to plug, I had to continue to move through it and try to establish this thing market-wise because we had a 50% income drop from that series. That's hard to eat as a business and survive. Mm -hmm. We managed to work through it. We learned the mistake. We did not make that mistake subsequently. And the next series going forward have recovered nicely from it. But these are lessons you learn along the way. And yeah. failure is the best teacher. So don't let that stop you. Just learn from it and don't make them the same mistake twice or a third time. Awesome. So now for someone, I mean, I can tell you what I read is as a recommended uh, to as James Rasone uh, primers. But what would you recommend for someone who's not familiar with your writing to as a start? For me, I would always recommend our most current works because honestly, this is something you just get better with over time. So uh -huh. the, the the type of stories and stuff we've written are obviously better now than they were six or seven years ago. I've written 26 sure. books. So I would tell people, if you really like the thriller genre and you like the high-tech aspects and AI and looking at that, I would, I would go with the Monroe Doctrine. If sci-fi is really your thing, then our, our Into the Stars, uh, you know, Rise of the Republic, that series, the Into the Stars is book one of that one. I, I would look at that. And one thing I would tell a lot of the readers is this is a conscious choice on our end. We don't put any sexual content and profanity in our books. That's a that's a choice that we yeah and we, I really like that a lot. Yeah, we, we've done that. Now that does not mean they are nonviolent. They're very they're very intense, um, but they're not overly so either. Everything has a purpose, and I believe that language has to have a purpose if you're going to use language and as well as details. No, that's one thing that was very much appreciated is that there isn't the profanity yeah. or the sex. You know, it's just, it alludes, it alludes to it and yeah. it obviously happens, but it's not gratuitous. It's not moving the story along. If it doesn't move the story along, it should be cut because the focus is the story, not the scene. Um, yeah. And the other thing I would say is if, if there's any people or, or vets or anyone else that's struggling with PTSD, though, I tell you, look at our other book, Interview of the Terrorists, because I'm pretty open about that. The things we had to see and do doing interrogating terrorists was, you know, that was, a, that was a tough job. And that's hard. When you go, like I was telling, you know, my last day in Iraq, I'm sitting here, I got hours to get out of this place, and we are getting the crap bombed out of us. And I'm sitting here thinking to myself, I just survived 556 days of this hellhole. I do not want to get blown up in my last few hours in this place. And 96 hours after that event, I'm walking around in the mall in Tampa, Florida. Now, how does your brain compute and, and go with that? I mean, how do you go from, I might die from these explosions and bombs going off to four day, less than four days later, you're walking around in the mall in, in Florida, people are getting a Starbucks and going on like life is normal. That's a challenge. And I struggled with that for years. And we, we have some good resources in that book and talk a lot about that challenge and what that was like. Okay, well, thank you very much for that too. So uh, how does somebody find you on the, uh, is it preferably on social media or website or how does somebody find you? You can find us on Facebook. We have a, we have a good uh, Facebook page on there. So you can find uh, James Rizone, Miranda Watson on there. Um, our reader groups are there. And then we have uh, frontlinepublishinginc.com is our, our website that we use. And on there, I've got, you know, both my mentees, 
that I'm working with right now that are active series, their books that they're, they've written in with me on. Because as a mentorship, I'm taking them in with me and saying, okay, you're going to work on this book with me. I'm going to show you how this is done. And this really gets them in the weeds and now they get to see it. And then I show them how we market this stuff because my end state is not to develop a bunch of co-authors that just sit right with me. My end state is to teach these guys how to become independent businesses themselves. So they will work with me on one series. I will co-author with them on another to walk them to make sure they fully understand it. And then the third one, they're on their own. And I'm going to teach them and set them up with how to be able to do that. Um, and that's my way of being able to address the, the veteran crisis that we have going on. Wow, that's amazing. Well, this has been great having this uh, chat with you. It's um, As I knew what happened, we blew through this hour and then some in no time. And thank you for listening. Subscribe to the Rise of the Future podcast where we get your podcasts. We've also been syndicated on the United Public Radio Network where you can find these podcasts as well. Rise of the Future series can be purchased wherever books are sold in the U.S., Canada, U.K., Australia, and South Africa and available everywhere via Amazon.com. Writers and Illustrators of the Future contest created by Elrond Hubbard to provide a means for the aspiring writer and artist to be seen and acknowledged. It is free to enter and open to amateur short story writers and artists of science fiction or fantasy. Again, thank you very much, James. Yeah, thank you very much for having me on and you know, I look forward to talking with you guys later. Great. Forbidden history, grisly ghosts, monstrous cryptids, and harrowing folklore dominate Japan's history and culture. Mysterious Japan is a bi-weekly podcast presenting these spine-chilling horror stories, urban legends, and unbelievable histories in a campfire story format. Many of these tales have never been presented in English before. Our journey takes place where dark history and supernatural folklore collide. Mysterious Japan is produced, written, and translated by recognized Japan expert Dr. Heath Havey. Season 1 relates the unbelievable legends and ghost stories from the so-called suicide forest. Listen to Mysterious Japan for free on Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Learn more at our website at themysteriousjapan.com and be transported by unbelievable stories where the lines between reality and folklore become blurred in the shadowlands of Japan. Once again, that's themysteriousjapan.com. Hello, and welcome to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast. This is John Goodwin, your host. This podcast is dedicated to the aspiring writer or artist and will provide inspiration and tips from top professionals in the field, along with contest winners and a few surprise guests. Today, we're speaking with Mike Jack Stumbos. He's a winner in Writers of the Future, Volume 38, and he's got an amazing story, which we're going to be talking about, called The Squid is My Brother. Welcome, Mike. Thank you for having me, John. All right. So lots of things I'm very interested to talk to you about. Um, first off is just your career as, as an author. So our audience, is, for the most part, is aspiring writers or artists. And so they're interested in you know, how you got your started, what obstacles you had to overcome, and where you've gotten to now, and what you're looking forward to achieving down the road. So just that, how did you decide that you're going to be a writer 
Yeah. I mean, I think like many, it's a, it's a long story that starts with a love of storytelling from an early age. Um, I definitely grew up with Star Trek and Star Wars. And my first medium for storytelling was action figures. And I was always trying to find ways to make more interesting and more dramatic things happen to the action figures. And I had, you know, three brothers, several cousins who were often saying, all right, Mike, we need to get past the dialogue and get to the actual fighting portion. And I, I, I liked the dramatic tension. So that was me. Um, and in terms of, of writing out my own stories, I, I started doing that a little bit more deliberately uh, into middle school and high school. And at the age of 15, I was like, all right, I'm going to write a novel because I had read Stephen King's on writing. And he said, 2000 words a day, you can get a novel done. And I'm like, cool. So I went in with no plan at all. Um, and by the way, I do actually highly recommend this to a lot of the students that I do work with as, as a teacher and tutor. And I'll get to that later. Um, if you want to write a novel, like sit down and do it. It's not necessarily going to be, you know, a, a novel that will sell or a breakaway success, but it, it was a really good experience for me. And it ended up being a 240,000 word Leviathan that is very shelved slash trunked. I'm, I'm not planning on doing anything with it, but, but I did it. I wrote 2000 words a day for a while and I was like, cool, I can do this. And because I didn't really know where to take it, uh, or, you know, whether or not I could get anything else off the ground if I wrote a novel, I started writing for theater because I knew theater groups. I, I was part of uh, the Vancouver, Washington, and Portland, Oregon theater scene. And so I started writing plays and I actually got one of my plays produced at age 17 and then kind of used that as a bridge into uh, college, University of Washington, where I continued to write for stage. And so I, I wrote 17 plays and I had 10 productions from things that I'd written. And that was really the, that was the start of a lot of it. Um, but the plan was to become an English teacher because that, that also made sense in my head. I'm not sure if that was also inspired by Stephen King, um, but, <laughs> but somewhere along the way, that, that seems to be the right progression. And so prior to getting my master's in teaching, um, I wrote a folkloric uh, comedy novel based on a lot of the things that I was familiar with in Theater Beats, self-published it. It didn't really go anywhere, but I was like, cool, I want to have this done. And then I started teaching, and that ended up being, weirdly, the biggest obstacle in my writing. Because I, I I got seriously stuck in full-time teaching mode for years. And so I spent like most of the next decade not really writing anything because I was I was a teacher. I was in the class, and then when I wasn't in the class, my head was still in the class. So uh so yeah, it took a long time for me to to get back into the mode of I I want to to write and try to publish. So really the big movement toward you know, what, what I've been writing recently and the writers of the future submissions was in the last two and a half years. I, I ran the numbers with my wife in terms of like, can I go to a more part-time teaching role or even substitute teaching and tutoring, still make the income that we need to and have the time and more importantly, the brain space to be able to do the writing that I want to do. Mm -hmm. Um, and so then I, I made that switch and I tried to make a deliberate commitment to do what it sounded like the professionals were doing. And I was like, all right, I'm going to write three novels a year and sell at least three short stories a year. This was summer of 2019. I had no idea how to make that happen. Maybe I shouldn't say no idea. I had very little idea how to make that happen. You just need to talk to Mike, Michael Anderley and he'll tell you how. That, that would be great, yeah. Um, I, I, I met uh, Craig Martell a couple months ago, so I had, I had a discussion with him about this kind of thing as yeah. well, which was very cool. <laughs> yeah, and, and so I... I, I set down that path, and and did I succeed the first year of it? No, um, but but I, I sold a couple of stories, you know, like uh, one in a charity anthology, a couple in like royalty shares, and then the next year I had my first pro sale um, because I was just I was writing stories like 
over and over and over again. Every every week, I tried to start a new short story and finish it by the end of the week. And I was trying to work on novels when I wasn't in the short story week mode. <laughs> and and during that process, I I think I built up enough of the muscle memory that I was able to start sending these things in. And I mean, I could also go deeper into sort of the the connections of how I found out about sure. writers of the future, if you'd like. Yeah. yeah. So that one, I, I would actually have to credit. Uh, so Kevin J. Anderson and uh, Superstars Writing Seminars of Wordfire Press. I'm pretty sure that every fiction publication that I've had was directly or indirectly through a contact uh, at Superstars. And along with that, hearing about Writers of the Future, not just as a uh, a text that I would actually occasionally use as a teacher to like, you know, have short stories that we could analyze in class. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I had this will sound very silly. I had no idea that it was something that was just like open submission for, for everyone. I'd vaguely heard about it and I assumed, okay, this is this like big elite group that you get invited into or something. Mm-hmm. And, and then people were telling me, no, no, this is like this free to submit quarterly thing. And it's, it's judged blindly, which means that, you know, if you really make a big mistake and make a fool of yourself, it will never get back to you. No one will ever know. And that's one of those things that I, I remember being afraid of when I was first spinning short stories, even though it it's it's a completely non-issue. If you don't make an impression, you don't make an impression. Um, but but yeah, so so then I, I reached a point with my, my writing and submitting stories where I was like, oh, this feels like just great practice for submission. And so I took my current favorite sci-fi story at the time and sent it in that first submission was a, a semifinalist. And that meant that I, you know, got to chat with Dave Farland and which which was, which was wonderful just to have that encouragement. And and I was like, oh, this is a doable thing. This is accessible. This is not, you know, this is not one in thousands. This is I'm setting some of my own odds. And and I, I'm I can I can work closer and closer to that goal and that deadline, which was just it was a very nice thing to do. Um, yeah. And uh that's one thing that Kevin did, <laughs> Kevin Anderson. Mm-hmm. I mean, all the creators, the superstars were or are the contest judges and then, or having entered the contest. But most of them, like Dave and Dean and Kevin, Rebecca, they're all judges. And then there were, I know, like I said, Michael Anderley was one who was helped create it. He's been on the podcast and he himself is a very strong supporter of Rise of the Future. But it's, that was amazing. I, I attended Superstars for the first time this year. And how much Rise of the Future was part of that, yeah. of, of the weave of superstars, just from all the people that were teaching it yeah. or that were um, in there as, as uh, attendees. Yeah, I, I would say, especially in the last year, I've gotten the impression that in the science fiction and fantasy world, it's a very small world among the, among the creators who are you know, friendly and, and, and want to be helpful and have that pay it forward spirit. Like that world I think is really small. There are probably, you know, a bunch of people in pockets outside of that world, but yeah, but a lot of the people who who really want to support the industry and support each other and support new writers, especially, I think it's a very small world. So there's a ton of overlap between, yeah, writers of the future and, and superstars and, uh, and, and uh, Dave Farland's apex writers group mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. And that was excellent to see just like kind of that, that coming together of a bunch of different kind of people who really wanted to work together and help each other about something that we were all very passionate about yeah. um, in our, in our delightful geeky ways. Exactly. That's great. So now you um, English teacher, full-time English teacher, part-time writer, part-time writer, full-time in essence, mm-hmm. or at least major source of funding, minor source of funding. So now you're anticipating that at some point, you're going to be able to totally 
cut the umbilical cord and um, not fly away <laughs> and get lost in space yeah. as a as a full time writer. How do you envision that curve going for you right now? I, I feel like I'm seeing it in the in the next couple of years, um, and a lot of it has been with the last eight months. Um, so let's see. I think it was uh, it was in May when the Writers of the Future quarter one winners were announced. So it was May 4th, Star Wars Day. I remember that one. Um, <laughs> Star Wars Day was when it was announced. And and in the aftermath of that, I had a couple other stories that I sold at Pro Rates. And that summer, I I was picked up by uh, Chris Kennedy Publishing. So that one was through, once again, this sort of overlap community of, of people trying to help and each other stars. out. And yeah, and, and superstars, I was running a, I was running a group called Nano Tribo. Um, and it's like NaNoWriMo, but we were doing off-season 60-day events, and and I've been I've been running it for uh, most of the COVID time because you know I, I was a I was a teacher who understood online education, and I could run a Zoom room, and I could run like goal trackers and encouragement things, and I didn't claim to be an expert of publishing or even the craft side of writing, but but I, I'm I'm very comfortable, and I'm gonna toot my own horn. I, I think I'm pretty good at providing an encouraging space for people who are working on goals to come in and say, "Hey, here's what I'm working on today. Here's how far I am. Here's my next hurdle to get over." And then we would have some co-working time when we'd share our progress. And I, it was I think it was really helpful in the community. And it was through that that I met my editor, Maya Cleave, who introduced me to Chris Kennedy and gave me an opportunity to pitch a science fiction series that was inspired by Star Trek. And and that was this last August when it was picked up. So August 2021, had a very frank conversation with the publisher. He wanted to buy the trilogy, and we basically phrased it in terms of like, okay, if we can get three books in and polished by X date, then we can do a rapid release. And, and we did in December, January, and March released three books and uh and those have i i feel like they've done well i don't actually have a lot of metrics to compare to because mm -hmm. this is the first time that i've done something yeah. like this with the publisher but they have you been, know chris kennedy likes yeah. to do that he likes to do exactly that, that cluster yeah, yeah but they they've been doing well enough that he is uh, he's greenlit me for continuing the series so i'm planning out four five and six and i've been invited into a couple other universes in the chris kennedy publishing group so i've got a uh, about eight novels on the docket for the next two and a half years that uh, <laughs> I'm going to be working on, which is is very exciting because the more the more I'm coming out with new content, the more the readers are being directed toward that backlist, and and the more it's becoming feasible that this is going to be a major source of income. Um, and so even now, I have I have moved into more of a part time uh, tutoring role. Um, and I've started working with a private online academy, so I've moved out of public school entirely by this point. Um, and I'm going to be teaching in the fall on a more regular basis with uh, Aquinas Writing Advantage. Teaching high school writing, so composition mechanics and their fiction writing series, which I was hired on. I, I was told very directly that it was because, you know, I had some credentials behind me. I was now a, a Writers of the Future winner, so award-winning author, and I had a, a science fiction series that it, you know people could see was growing. It, it's amazing how people don't realize the number of writing classes taught by writers. They might have a degree in English, but they've never published anything. Or if they have, it's been some superficial thing, but they're, they're not like actually having published something out there in, in the real world and had to sell and get real numbers. Yeah. And actually, I, I will say, uh, thinking back of the the initial self-pub that I did of the folkloric thing back in 
2012. I did it because when I was a student, um, so middle school and high school, this may sound this may sound like a little bit annoying, but I was the the kid who would talk to the English teachers and say, like, well, why are you teaching English if you haven't contributed to literature? And and yes, I said things like that as a kid. And so it was, it was, I was a little bit obnoxious. I will admit that. But it's, it was something that so stuck true, with though. me. And I wanted to, yeah, and I wanted to not be one of those teachers who who was teaching a thing that I hadn't tried to participate in. Do as I say, not as I've never done. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> Good. All right. So, um I want to transition over here a little bit to your story that's in Rise of Pleasure, Volume 38, because I was fascinated by it. I read all the stories twice, having uh, proofread them. And the story, The Squid is My Brother, was, it's an odd-sounding name, but it makes total sense having, yeah. you know, gone through it and the whole thing of, I mean, I'll let you talk about it here, but it's, it's an amazing story on this subject for me what really stuck on the subject of bullying mm -hmm. and surviving it so tell me about this how you came up with the idea and, and a bit about that totally giving it away yeah um so the squid is my brother is a science fiction story that involves a a, a kid a, a little girl who has been raised away from Earth on a space station where everyone has an alien symbiote attached to their spine because that is how they survive in the harsh environment. And then she's sent to Earth as uh, she's referred to as a, a sort of transfer student at the time. That's the that's what she's told. Um, while something dangerous is happening out on the station. And she has to contend with going to a place where nobody has symbiotes and they're, they're, not, they're not used to that. Um, and this is one of those stories that I wrote because I really needed to read it, and I'll, I'll kind of explain why. I, uh, at the beginning of of the quarantine and the COVID shutdown, so schools were just gone without any explanation of when they would be coming back or how we were going to support students or support families in between time. And so, you know, I was I was a teacher involved in the school system, and and we're talking, you know, uh, what April of of twenty twenty, and everyone was in this kind of weird high anxiety mode where they didn't know what to expect. There was this massive fear of the unknown with a plague that people didn't know how advanced it was going to get or how deadly it was going to be as it spread through. And, and they didn't know when they'd be getting back to school. Everyone was kind of dealing with this new environment and this feeling of loneliness and this feeling of the unknown. And I really needed to read a story that dealt with these things and dealt with these struggles, but also had some message of hope. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't find that story, and so I wrote it. And this was one of those things that I just, it was, I, I had, I had to have some access to it, and so that was what that came from. And I guess the secondary part of it, like why would somebody write a story about alien symbiotes attached to people? Um, I have a habit of taking things that are usually in the realm of like cosmic horror, or at the very least, sci-fi horror, rubbery monsters ish. Like, how can we make this accessible? How can we make this familial? How can we make this potentially even adorable? Um, <laughs> And that's that's just that's just something that I like to play with. A lot of ideas are inspired by those kinds of what ifs. And so those two what ifs came together and and I wrote this story about the struggles of a, of an exchange student or a transfer student who's markedly different from the other students and having to deal with it. And a lot of the inspiration came from from yeah, things that I I have experienced or witnessed as a teacher or as a student or as a friend of other students in schools. And so and so bullying does come up as a as a strong um, topic, I'm not going to say theme because you know this is in no way insupportable. Right. But like, 
But when somebody is is notably different and not just different, but a kind of different that we don't yet have a way of quantifying or understanding, we haven't come up with a good way of labeling it or dealing with it or even protecting it in some ways, then then these forms of 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 misunderstandings and othering and teasing is is really damaging. And it's a very hurtful form of bullying because the person being bullied feels totally alone and they don't have they don't have those kinds of supports that I, I feel like there are a lot of things that once once we can kind of understand them, that we can put them into categories that make it easier to to protect and help and support students who would otherwise be bullied. But sometimes in the you know in the early days or the unknown days of something, it's it's really difficult to provide that support. Yeah, I mean your story it wasn't just the kids. Yeah. You know, you yes. got, you got the educators too that were yeah. like we're unable to deal with something different. Yeah. You know, so I mean, for me, it's really good. It wasn't like you're slapping me in the face with, okay, here's my, I'm trying to give you my message and this is what I'm trying to, to show you. Yeah. But it, it was a great story. And this little kid, how, how she comes to deal with it. And mm -hmm. you, I mean, her mom's a hero. Yep. You know, out in the space station, she's doing whatever she's doing. She doesn't know what she's doing, but she's a hero. Yeah. And, um, and everybody understands that. And so that's why, you know, the school, all, all the people are like, yeah, your mother's a hero, but you got to, you know, even how they relate to the uh, symbiote on, on her back, you know, mm -hmm. calling an octopus. She said, it's not an octopus. Yep. You know? Yeah. Was it Saturnian? Is that, or what was it that? Oh, so they, they refer to them as Neptunians. Neptunians rather. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Yeah. It's the, uh, from Neptune station. So she right. was uh, raised on an orbital station around Neptune in a way that's like it's very briefly touched on his backstory but basically she just has this thing attached to her back that has some amount of tentacles and interfaces with with her so that she can better interact with the world um and and yeah so the i think the first exposure uh you know anecdote somebody says you know you put away the monster when you know this alien creature sort of sticks a tentacle out of her backpack yeah yeah absolutely <laughs> so I mean, that's good. So you answered the question of the inspiration of this, because that's like, what would have caused that to happen? You know, mm -hmm. so that, that totally makes sense on that. So now you have uh, started, a. you mentioned that you started a series. You gave a copy of it to me um, here at the, at the workshop, and I got through the first several chapters on it. So the first book here is The Signal Out of Space, and this is the first of three volumes that have been published so far. And it's amazing, because again, you you've got, a lot of times science fiction has, you got humans, how they tackle different things. And it's humans versus humans versus humans versus here, you know, and humans are known as the um, warring tribe. Mm -hmm. You got these other <laughs> races and they all have to work together to be able to defeat this other foe, which could actually, you know, create a problem for all of them. So this is a, a it's a very interesting way, you know, it's, you said that you're inspired by Star Trek, mm -hmm. you know, so very much so. Yeah. Definitely got there, but it, but this is not fan fiction, no, by any shape or means. It's just that was inspiration of that type of thing where you got all these different races working together. Yep. Um, so a little bit about that. Besides, yeah, well, I like Star Trek. <laughs> you know yeah. that this came to be. Yeah, it pulled from definitely a few different science fiction and space opera inspirations. The, the comparisons that I've made are Star Trek in particular, like uh, the 
Starfleet Academy. Um, and then along with that academy, I, I thought of the Ender's Game Academy and sort of the the mind games that the instructors will play with the kids who they want to, you know, they want to get the best out of them, mm-hmm. but they're also very willing to break them down in the process. And then a couple others were uh, the uh, the Expanse, which I actually hadn't read until writing the first two books from this. But but once you know, I had I had read some of that, I was like, oh, this is a good comparison for like mm-hmm. what kind of people would like. Um, and then another one that came out as a comparison when somebody read one of my beta readers read this, and they were like, you should read A Long Way to a Small and Gray Planet uh, by Becky Chambers because of the way that the different aliens work together as opposed to being always in conflict. And and so those, I think, are some good comparisons for getting started. For me, I wanted to find a way to create more dynamics between the human and alien species other than just fighting or finding the oh yes they're just like humans but with forehead wrinkles um so i wanted to get beyond that i wanted to find so some ways to to bring these species together and just kind of play with those those what ifs and those archetypes of different kinds of creatures cultures societies languages and all of the ways that they might you know find symbiosis and also with the ways that they might clash um but it's interesting you see yeah. that i also look at just in general, not that we're all different types of race, uh, mm-hmm. types of creatures, but on Earth, you've got all different cultures act not dissimilar to what you have going on there. Mm-hmm. But even how um, I think it was President Reagan that said it would require some greater threat to Earth to get everybody to start working together. Yeah, you know, and then to that point, you've got everybody fighting. It still has that that conflict that can be there, but it's subdued or it's, you have a greater purpose, which then gets everybody working together who would otherwise potentially be enemies. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree. And there, and there is some of that in the series yeah. as well. Um, and in particular, the, the human beings ally themselves with a, a species that basically says, Hey, we have done some research on you. We've been observing you from far. We can tell that you're really good at blowing things up. We need people to help us blow things up. And in return, we will help to fix your environment and give you interstellar travel. So that's where this initial alliance is made. And it's between humans Paul and, and uh, yes, Paul Newman, Paul Newman is one of the, <laughs> yeah, between humans and, uh, and a species called the teak and the teak are basically like four foot tall hive mind cockroach-shaped things. And that was one that I'm like, yep, yeah, I'm going to take the hive-minded insects who are usually the villains and I'm going to make them the human's primary allies. And, you know, in, in the brainstorming process and, and you know, kind of sending little scenes to, to alpha readers and being like, all right, what do you what do you think of this? How would they interact with like This seems scary and disgusting. And I'm like, okay, how do I, how do I keep the four-foot-tall cockroaches from being disgusting? I'm like, ooh, I will make them, like, smell like fresh laundry. And that's one of those weird comparisons that comes up. And so, yeah, you know, one of the characters describes early on, it's like, you know, the teak would be terrifying to anyone who's afraid of insects until you're in their presence. And then they smell like fresh laundry and it's comforting. <laughs> and I was like, this is a sense that's usually not used very often in describing species in science fiction. Never used. it's in a terrible way. And I'm like, I'm going to use this in a positive way. But yeah, so the, so the This Fine Crew group of species, I wanted to play with the space opera archetypes. I, I wanted to have, you know, that, that, big furry warrior species who's like kind of a cross between a Wookiee and a Klingon. I wanted to have the hive mind insect species. I wanted to have the cold blooded reptile species and I wanted to do kind of my own, my own spin on them and then just not have all of them fall into here is exactly how a Klingon would behave hmm. or, <laughs> you know, and, and so, and so that's what I do with the, uh, the main characters in the, this fine crew series. It's four characters of 
four different species, one human and three other aliens. And they're the main characters are each doing something that's a little bit atypical for their species. They're they're I a little bit the off. I missed the name Paul right Newman, so mm-hmm. uh, let's go ahead. So oh, I don't sure. have, yeah. so have people just like going, what? Paul Newman, yeah. <laughs> um, so Paul Newman is the is the primary teak in the story. So the the teak, um, the jektitik, which is their name as it's written in the book, and everyone calls them teak because it's hard to pronounce. They have names that are hive names that are basically a series of numbers and and their home planet. And so when Teak end up working with humans, they pick a human name, um, usually based on some celebrity who it has uh, has been deceased for close to 100 years. And so this one in particular, who wanted to learn about humans and be like humans has named himself Paul Newman. And Paul Newman is a Paul Newman is a lot of fun. He is somebody who always has the very best of intentions and and actually doesn't doesn't really run afoul of anything when he's, you know, usually when you have the best of intentions characters they say something really dumb and mess up a situation. But no, this is somebody who has really good intentions and wants to learn and is going to just ask those questions all of the time to, to be like, oh, I heard you say this thing. I want to know about that. Please tell me more. Um, so Paul Newman gets to be this sort of eager, wide-eyed, learning child character in the story and is also, I think, the best lens for uh, for you know the readers to get to know the world. So that was very convenient for me and a lot mm-hmm. of fun to write. That's great. Yeah, so it's... I mean, I, I do a lot of podcasts, and so I read a lot of books and a lot of different styles. And it's fascinating. I mean, with having read your your short story that, that you that you put, The Squid is my my brother, and now reading your story here, you definitely like the action. You know, you're definitely into not so much in the squid is my brother, but in the sick in the um signal out of space, there's I think your main human character is just like he's a speed demon and he's yes. like he loves high adrenaline and others who aren't used to it have to deal with that yep <laughs> so so you're like are any of these characters or anything that you do there are stereotypical or you try to take something and just do your own spin on this type of a personality how does that go because he's he's obviously um i wouldn't call him stereotypical but he's he's very much like i said the speed demon he's like mm-hmm. What I think of like um, special forces yep. type of a guy. Yeah. Um, so to tell you the truth, the human character uh, Darren Lidstrom, who grew up in Detroit about a hundred years from now, uh, in some kind of like industrialized auto factory society, who wanted more than anything to be a pilot and to find the fastest ships and fly them as as quickly and as far away as he could. Not necessarily to escape, but like just he wants to do this in kind of a, that kind of adrenaline junkie. I uh, tell you the truth, he was most inspired by my father. Um, really? So yeah, so my, my dad, I've, I mean, my dad has, uh, he has, he has certainly mellowed some on the adrenaline junkie, but you know, every now and again, he'll, he'll tell stories about things that he was doing when he was younger um, or even, some things that he wants to do. Uh, but, you know, he was somebody who chose his college because of the the ski slopes nearby. You know, so he wanted to go as fast as possible. You know, had the had the motorcycle until he had his first kid and was like, all right, get rid of the motorcycle. But 
but there was this sort of eagerness to be the the fastest moving person both physically and also in terms of like i want to grow i want to climb i want to accelerate that that i, I really based on him and my dad was also born in detroit um yeah so my dad's a first generation greek american and you know very interested in getting to know different people but also wanting to be that 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 faster moving faster performing find uh find something to jump off of find a ski slope to go down <laughs> um yeah so and that and that was fun for me right yeah. just be able to kind of like dig into that psyche that was amazing yeah, yeah and he, in a very positive way yeah, he's a cool listening character. To this. yeah um <laughs> yeah that's that's totally cool so now on um so how's the sequence go so you got the first three books anything I mean, I'm going to say, okay, volume two, then as soon as I tell you about volume two is about, then all of a sudden you know what the ending of volume one is. But sure. in a way that you can talk about how how does the uh, timeline move forward on the first three books of Fine Crew? Yeah, so this Fine Crew, uh, the first three books are mostly about the arc of these characters, these uh, these four aliens. I'm sorry, one human, three aliens. I guess they're all aliens to each other. Yeah. Um, who are cadets in the Interstellar Initiative and trying to advance and get long-term commission on these exploration vessels. And so the trilogy goes through that process up until you know their commission and being able to leave the solar system while things are going wrong in the process. Um, so the signal out of space is at the Academy, Olympus Mons Academy on Mars, and there is a conspiracy going on there, and there is uh, an unidentified threat that if they don't figure out how to deal with, it will destroy the budding alliance before it has a chance to start. The next book, A Rupture in Time, using some of the threads of this phenomenon they've discovered in book one, uh, there, there are some temporal mechanics that are, uh, that are in jeopardy. So basically, the possibility of looking into the future using this phenomenon they've encountered um, could potentially save them from a calamity that they're seeing in the future and or could destroy them if they end up in a predestination paradox. And so during the next leg of their training, that is also kind of cut short in terms of, oh, we need to deal with this and or evacuate everyone from, uh, from you know, the training ship and go from there. Um, in the third book, uh, Seed in the Sky, this one is a little bit harder to describe without going into spoilers from books one and two, but Seed in the Sky is very much culmination of the things started in books one and two. So dealing with the same phenomenon that was encountered in book one that gets a little bit worse and they deal with more in book two. And then in book three, after it seems like they've dealt with it in books one and two, um, it kind of calls back to uh, the original reason that the, that humans took to the stars. So the, the war that they were involved in where the Teak said, humans come help us blow something up. Mm -hmm. Well, the thing that they blew up isn't happy about it and comes back to Earth and it's attached to this phenomenon they've been dealing with from the beginning. Um, and so Seed in the Sky involves a, a strange object appearing uh, somewhere in orbit of our moon. So somewhere over Earth that quickly becomes, it grows big enough that it becomes visible to everyone on the planet and is one of those things that is like, this could not just jeopardize the Alliance or destroy an academy, uh, but, you know, could overwhelm and 
pretty much obliterate everyone on Earth if it's not dealt with. And that becomes the thing that they deal with in Seed in the Sky. Um, and the series from there is, is going to be more continuing missions. So I've in talks with my publisher. Uh, we're trying to set up books four, five, and six as easy entry points. So okay. not necessarily as standalones. They will still be a trilogy, but much more... Uh, here is an episode that you can get start to finish, even if you haven't read any of the others. So one, two, and three, I definitely recommend reading in sequence. But four, five, and six, we're trying to set up as as an easy entry point, so that if any of those do like really take off and go big, somebody could start reading at what is yeah, currently the most is, popular yeah. book and then go back to the beginning. Well, that's um, good. So yeah, that's is that a, a trend right now to do that? Because the series is a big deal, and yeah. especially selling book contracts is like almost like the norm now yeah i've i've heard that it is a recommendation now i i don't actually have enough data to say if that is a growing trend but i'd heard it as a recommendation i'm like that makes sense to me i'll give it a try um and and definitely after uh after getting involved in, in chris kennedy publishing like i've been i've been going to chris as as a mentor in this process and he's been really helpful with kind of like yeah, you know, those those steps and guidance and a lot of other people in the Chris Kennedy publishing group. Mm -hmm. So so yeah, so that's been wonderful. Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, I actually met him for the first time this year at Superstars. I was on a couple of different panels with him. Yeah. And um seems like a really, really nice guy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's um he's definitely very driven to like you know, do everything that he can for for his authors to make sure that their books are as successful as possible. Because, and you know, he will also say in in kind of that that glib offhand way, it's like, yeah, what what makes you money makes me money. And well, you that, know, that's yeah, totally right. But he's also, yeah, correct. I I feel like he's been, yeah, I feel like he's been really great to work with. That's great. Um, yeah. So now, um, with respect to writers of the future, so how long were you entering the contest? So the win was on my third time. So okay. yeah, I had a semifinalist the first time. The second one was an honorable mention, and the third one was the win. It was the win? So have you facilitated? Have you used any of the other facilities of the Rise of Future, like the RiseOfFuture dot com? Because there's the the blog, the podcast, the forum. Uh, obviously, there's the contest and writing course. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I've gone through the workshop. Um, yeah, really like the uh, the lessons. Uh, so yeah, the the online writing workshop with uh, with David Farland, Orson Scott Card, and Tim Powers um, teaching, as well as the the article. So I've gone through that one, um, and I've also used the forum to some degree. But I feel like a lot of the interaction with the Writers of the Future uh, group has been through some of those other overlapping support groups. Mm -hmm. um, one person in particular who's been uh, who's been a great help as just like somebody who's a few years ahead of me that I can talk to is Martin Shoemaker. Um, and, and I've been, I've been working with Martin every chance that I can get whenever he's, you know, talking about, uh, about dictation and sort of like, yeah. you know, getting out of your own way and being willing to do uh, improvisation in your drafts. Um, and so he's been kind of running a, a, a group event for that through the apex writers group. And, and I've been, showing up to those whenever I get the chance and like picking his brain about it. And uh, so, yeah, so there are definitely a lot of overlaps in the writers of the future community. Mm -hmm. um, and I would say that that's probably where I'm, I'm pulling most of the resources there, but I've also been finding myself when I, you know, when I'm working with other writers in, in different support groups, I will tell them about writers of the future as just a, a great way to, you know, practice writing a story and submit it because you, you might as well, you've got nothing to lose and it's a great way to learn and get comfortable submitting stories. For sure, for sure. Now you've um, you said you did the online course and you liked the videos. Was there any particular essay from Mr. Hubbard that you read that like 
stands out for you? Hmm. That is a good question. I really like the story of a hat. The oh, story yeah, of magic one, the magic out of yeah, the hat. Magic out there of we hat. go. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah. And and you know, when I when I read the opening of that one and the I think it was the Ben Franklin anecdote, you know, the um for want of a for yeah. want of a horseshoe's nail poem. Yeah. And I started talking about like, all right, let's let's do that with another object. And and this was also in association with I think the Orson Scott card video of like, you know, a thousand ideas in an hour. And I really like those because, you know, talking through that process of, of idea generation is super fun for me. And I, I always end up coming up with more ideas through those kinds of through those kinds of tasks. And yeah, that article is one of Orson Scott Card's favorites. Mm-hmm. <laughs> In fact, he did a whole podcast interview talking about that, that yeah. essay. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I love Ender's Game. Those, uh, those yeah, just great novel yeah. to, to be able to dig into. I have yet to read the original short story, and I really would like to just as a case study to be able to compare them back and forth. And I, I have not, I have not found it yet, but I should, you know, I should figure out where to find the original short story. Yeah, it's an interesting story. I think I covered it also on the interview I did with um, Tom Doherty, the publisher of Tor, because he, I think it was in Texas they met, and Scott asked for an extension because it was another. There was the other story that was first, which is um, um, maybe even Speaking for the Dead was the first one. And then Ender's Game came after that. But he had, wanted more time to actually to take Ender's Game and to make it more of a story to turn it into a novel. So Tom gave him an extension on it before doing, I think it was Speaker for the Dead. And so there was uh, over lunch, they discussed it and it ended up turning then from a short story to a novel and there we go. One of the That's best science fiction yeah. stories ever written. Absolutely oh. amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And he's been a judge for 33 years yeah. or so, 35 years. Yeah. So he's, he's been definitely a good friend of, of personal friend as well as a great friend of the, of the contest for a long time. Yeah. So with respect to like advice or tips to um, the aspiring writer, cause that's, that's who a lot of this audience is. So you're obviously an English teacher, so you've mm-hmm. got a, a leg up on writing and grammar and punctuation and all that kind of stuff. In the final analysis from your perspective, how important is that to get yourself launched? Is, is, a reason to, is that a reason to stop writing until you get a, a, a formal education in all this stuff to be able to do that? Or is it something that, if you come up with a story, then someone else can help you. An editor can come and help you with that stuff. Like, I'm not sure how much you use an editor and how much it's like you're a one man showing on because you've got all this education under your belt. Hmm. Well, so I definitely do work with an editor. And I think for me, having taught English and having like read a lot of people's writing, mostly essays, but like, you know, I've read a lot of people's writing. I've, I've had opportunities to critique and workshop it with a specific end goal in mind. Um, and I've also worked as a freelance writer uh, doing nonfiction articles. I was writing for a, a subsidiary of Amazon for a while and doing uh, informational articles for a site that was like Quora but never got as big. And and so I really liked having those opportunities in the more academic writing mm-hmm. to be able to kind of refine my craft and, and feel like I can I can reliably write 600 words on this, know that it will sound clear. That said, I don't I don't think that a formal education is necessarily required to tell a good story. Um, in my case, it helps the way that I like to analyze it, the, th- the kinds of things that I'm interested in, and the ways that I will uh, structure plots or set up characters or look at planting theme seeds in the beginning of a story. I 
I will admit that I do do that in a way that feels like an English teacher to me. Mm -hmm. And that works for me, but that's my method. I don't think that that's necessarily required for everyone. And I, I definitely think that most people who are interested in writing will find that they benefit from some kind of editor. Even if they have brilliant control of grammar and mechanics, they will benefit from some other perspective of somebody who's able to look at their story as a product to sell, because eventually it will be a product to sell, even if it came out of like a space of, of inspiration and it came from your soul. It should eventually be a product to sell if you're trying to sell sure. it. And and having that additional perspective from a professional editor is really helpful because they can address what things in your genre or style or previous things you've written, even if you've worked them for a while, are more likely to fit that sellable product. Okay, good. Now I have a question. I haven't actually asked this of anybody yet, but every now and then I'll hear people say, you know, write what you love, write what you love. Some people will say, well, I don't find anybody saying this, right? what's currently out there right to a, a trend, but what's your take on, on what you're writing? Like you said, you were inspired by, by Star Trek, but mm -hmm. it's not Star Trek. So is your, are you trying to write something that you think other people are going to like, or do you write something that you just enjoy writing or, and then people, you know, you're going to find people that enjoy that because there's some people that like that type of story or how do you go on that? Yeah, it's a good question. And it's a hard one to answer, I think, because, I, I definitely have approached it differently over the course of the last however many years. Um, by now, I'm working specifically with a publisher and on a series that I'm looking at as a as a product, along with as a story. So I'm writing a story that I really enjoy. Um, I do genuinely love writing these particular characters in this setting, which makes it a lot more fun for me. And and I, I don't know, maybe eventually the series could go on long enough where I would decide that I'm getting bored of it. I don't see that happening yet. And I think as long as I'm no longer seeing that possibility, it will be awesome to write it as a product and as something that I love. Um, it's like Michael Angley with his Cartherian Gambit. Yeah. You know, he's just got, he just goes on and on and on, but there's just so much fun. Yeah. You know, exactly. But yeah, for, for short stories in particular, I, I think that it's a great idea for a short story because it is such a small commitment if there's something that's fascinating you that's going to like you know keep you up at night if trying to tease out this idea of how or why something could work on the page great write it i mean that's mm -hmm. you don't necessarily need to be planning on a product for a short story because it's such a small commitment that even just the practice of writing it could be super beneficial you might write a story that you would never end up selling but you learn something about yourself and about your writing process and maybe it inspires a, another thing later for something novel length, I think that if somebody is looking to publish, and this is, you know, I'm I'm of the school of thought that says that your first novel should be just for you and it's a practice thing. And if you end up publishing your first novel after however many drafts years later, good for you. But but yeah, I think that the first novel is a practice novel. Yeah, many um, actually established authors, they throw away your first half million to a million words. Right. Yeah. Yep. I, I've heard the your your first million words are practice. And some people yeah. use less flattering words than practice. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I and I think that's a totally fair way of looking at it. But at a certain point, if you're looking to sell a novel and and you've already had some practice under your belt, then you do have to think about what kind of thing is going to fit whatever you're going toward in terms of genre market. I don't know which author I heard say this, and I don't think it's an uncommon thing. But they said that. You know, a lot of new writers either struggle with trying to follow a formula exactly, and if you try to do exactly what 
um, I don't know, we can pick any kind of science fiction author. If you try to do exactly what uh, we'll use Michael Anderley is doing, you're probably not gonna be able to turn out content as quickly as him or as effectively as him with the kind of marketing team or with the cover design. So it's not gonna be picked up as well. Mm -hmm. Or if you're trying to go entirely opposite, if you're trying to do something completely 100% original, then nobody will, nobody knows you enough to have buy-in something that's so weird and bizarre. And you know maybe lightning will strike. Maybe somebody will find that thing and show it to the right group of grad students at Princeton who will say, this is gold, we must make it a literary success. And okay, good for you if you're that one in you know, however many million. Um, but the advice was, write something that is 85% the same as you know the leading thing in the genre that you're writing, and 15% you. 15% different or original. And that was something that I had not heard in those terms before I'd started writing this fine crew. But after I'd heard it, I was like, this actually seems really appropriate because this fine crew does have a lot of uh, space opera things that I think people would expect to find in a space opera. A lot of the, the basic plot structures and a lot of the species archetypes are pretty similar to a multi-species space opera like Star Trek, um, which will have the characters investigating some kind of uh, scientific or, in some cases, pseudoscience anomaly and figuring it out and resolving it in a way that doesn't get them blown up by the end. Mm -hmm. But there are things that I'm playing with in terms of the character perspectives and the different, uh, you know, culture of aliens approaches uh, that are different and are things that I haven't seen or been able to read in other and other stories. And so it does feel like I'm following that sort of 85% of what people would expect and 15% of something that's me. So that would be, I guess, the advice that I would pass on from whatever author I heard it from. And um, Well, you're about ready to hear it from Aaron Hubbard mm -hmm. in the uh, workshop. There's gonna, when, at the very end, you will be reading this article called Art. And in there, he says that art is the quality of communication and writing is obviously art. Yeah. And he said originality can actually be the enemy of communication because if you get too original, it doesn't communicate. Right. You know, people don't know what they're looking at, what they're in this case, what they're reading. Yep. So you got to have that, you know, you can, you can be original, but you've got to be able to keep in mind that you're, it's, it's a communication that you're actually delivering with your story. Yeah. And so that's the that's the senior consideration is the quality of communication. So if somebody can understand what you're saying and then you can make your own, voice heard on that right then that's good he doesn't say 85 15 right but he does say it's that too much originality can actually make it so a person cannot understand what they're seeing or in mm -hmm. this case what they're reading so yeah i would agree yeah so that's one of those one of those principles or datums that comes up whenever i interview past winners that is it you know even 20 30 years you know having since one say well what whatever number well Art is the quality of communication. It's always stuck with me, you know, yeah. and it's and, it, and it's so true what you're saying there. You know, it's, it's, that's that's very um, observant, yeah. very astute there. Well, and I would also say the same thing for uh, for the squid is my brother. That was one of those stories that I will admit there were some people in a writing group that I was part of who were also submitting to Writers of the Future who told me not to submit it because there were some things that it did were that were a little bit weird and unexpected, and they were like, this probably doesn't fit the formula of a Writers of the Future submission. And I was like. Yeah, but I really like the story, and I feel like it, it reads well to me. And 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 if if it's a rejection, that's okay. I haven't lost anything, so I'm going to send it. And and I think you know the more I'm hearing 
different stories from other people who have won because I've um, I, I already knew a lot of the the winners from this last year, mm-hmm. and I've gotten to know them more since you know they've announced the wins and and we're able to chat about that. But hearing their commentaries, it sounds like they're coming at it from a similar approach where they're not necessarily trying to follow what they think is an exact formula for writers of the future. They're aware of, you know, some of the the genre expectations and they're aware of some of the things that um Dave Farland as the head judge particularly appreciated. But they're also telling something that is very interesting and unique to them. Mm-hmm. They're not just following a formula for the sake of formula. And I think if you follow a formula for the sake of formula, even if you do it really well, I imagine that the furthest you can get is honorable mention. Yeah. Because originality is a key part. Mm-hmm. But it's got to be within a framework that we've got here. Because, yeah. I mean, our stories are pretty much all PG. Yeah. You know, and we're not moralizing, but... It's got to be something that's going to be appropriate for middle school on up. Yeah. Well, and as somebody who's who's taught classes and lessons with stories from Writers of the Future volumes, I tend to look for ones that seem like they have something uplifting in them, even if it's not necessarily a, a beat you over the head theme, mm-hmm. that there's something that somebody can take away and be like, oh, this does give me some hope. This does give me some sense of joy. This gives me some sense of learning, even just vicariously through what the character is experiencing. And it's a positive takeaway. Yeah, volume 37 was a bit more uplifting than ever before just because of the pandemic. You know, mm-hmm. Dave was like very interested. Like, I I just need to like put something out there that people are just like, okay, let's just take a chill pill here, yeah. <laughs> you know? And, um, but yeah, that's what, originality is, is a key part of what judges are looking for. Carrie did a, I had a podcast with her, Carrie English, the first reader, and and we've got meetings that we do on like establishing, maintaining the voice for Rise of the Future. It's not like, obviously, no book has, this is the theme of Writers of the Future. There is none. Right. You know, it's just, there's, that's why we can, we can honestly say there's something for any, of any taste in science fiction and fantasy in yeah, any Writers of the Future volume. Because even if I, I love one, five, seven, I, I couldn't get into volumes numbers three and six. But across the volume, there's always going to be guaranteed stories that anybody who enjoys science fiction or fantasy can be able to, uh, to yeah. enjoy. So now you've got the Squizman Brothers science fiction. This fine crew is science fiction. Mm-hmm. Do you ever touch fantasy? I do, actually. My first, uh, my first professional sale, uh, this was 8 cents a word plus royalties, was uh, folkloric slapstick comedy fantasy. <laughs> <laughs> and and that was another one where people were like, I don't think you could write a slapstick <laughs> slapstick on the page. And I was like, but I think I did, and I think it works. Um, yeah, and that was a, a real Llewellyn scone, and that was published in July 2020 in Galactic Stew with Zombies Need Brains. And I'm actually in, a, in another upcoming Zombies Need Brains anthology. And a real Llewellyn scone is about a tiny Welsh village that needs to collect dragon tears to make the best scones anyone's ever tried. Um, and and it's, it's, a, it's a completely ridiculous little like fable structured story where everything is going to go wrong for the main character uh, but but in a distinctly funny way, just because of the convergence of how it goes wrong, and it involved the dragon and some folklore, and and uh, you know, and my my mom's family is English, and I I, I like pulling from that lore when I can. Mm. <laughs> yeah, so so yes, I do touch some fantasy, um, but I think I tend to lean a little bit more either folkloric fantasy, uh, or I will tap into sort of like the 
the urban fantasy and a little bit of a cheeky way. So I, uh, one of the stories that I, a uh, novella that I sold was uh, Clarence Hemlock, Computer Wizard, and it's very inspired by the structure of a Dresden Files or Iron Druid story, but from the point of view of a wizard who works as a computer repairman in like a strip mall kiosk, people give him their laptops, he takes behind a curtain, zaps it, and they're like, oh wow, how'd you fix it so quickly? He's like, oh, you know, just turned it off and on again. And then, you know, he ends up dealing with a baleful spirit that's trapped in a dead man's laptop. Um, but I, but yeah, but I wrote that one because I'm like, I, I, I have no idea how they fixed those those computers. There must be some magic going on there. And because, you know, in both uh, Iron Druid and Dresden Files, they keep saying that that magic mucks with technology. And I'm like, maybe there's a way around that. So, so you, you work to fix yeah. that problem. <laughs> for aspiring writers, we're, we're down to the last like four minutes or so here right. now. So with respect to aspiring writers, what advice would you have for them based upon what you've had to go through, overcome, maybe even some of your most severe hurdles that almost stopped you, but you're able to like pursue it regardless. Yeah. Um, one that I've been telling a lot of people lately, uh, because I've, I've had people ask me sort of how to get connected with people that can, you know, help you get your stuff published. I've I've been very highly recommending that people find not only writing groups, but but people who are like a couple steps ahead of them. Like I, I think everyone who's a sp- an aspiring writer wants to reach out to Brandon Sanderson and immediately be his best friend. That's difficult. Brandon Sanderson probably has a lot of friends lined up. Um, but if if you're looking in your own writing community and there's somebody who's you know a couple steps ahead is starting to to sell stories and publish things, uh, reach out to them. Ask, ask like offer to beta read. Ask if you can like you know, help promote their next book, be part of that process and like learn from them as they go. Um, that's something that I've been highly recommending to people because it's, it seems like, it seems like it should be an obvious step in retrospect. Um, and it's something that was really helpful to me once I started doing it. And, and it very strongly mm-hmm. coincided with me getting more things published and hearing about more open calls for anthologies. And, and yeah, so that's, <laughs> that's a big one that I would say. And also kind of the age old, you get better at writing by writing, find opportunities to crank out a draft of a short story, even if you're not worried about sending it anywhere. Um, and then on the short story front, because I've been working with some people on their first short story submissions, I tell them they want to get to the point where they're sending out enough short stories often enough that the sting of rejection no longer feels as strong. They're not waiting by their inbox, refreshing every few seconds because they have enough stories in the air and they're mm-hmm. working on the next one. So no individual story becomes as precious once you've got five of them out, 10 of them out, 15 out at a time. That's great. So on um, your own process of, of writing, so you mentioned, I think, earlier 2,000 words a day. So is that what you're... Is that what you write when you're when you're writing? Is like two thousand yeah. words a day? Is I'm, I'm trying to do that on a regular basis. Um, so with the book launch, uh, so in March I I had two book launches, so one short story collection, one novel, several events that I was hosting, and then going to conventions, and then eventually prepping to fly out to this to the Writers of the Future conference. And so I only had eighteen days of of like fiction writing time. In those eighteen days, I wrote over fifty thousand words. So that's that's about 2,600 words a day for a fiction writing day. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm trying to make that more consistent. Like if I can if I can ideally do an average of 2,500 words a day on an ongoing basis, then that's that gets me pretty close to that I'm going to write a novel start to finish in a couple months. 
Yeah. So that's the goal right now. Yeah. Good. I'm getting closer to it. That's excellent. That's yeah. well done to you on that. So um, for someone to find you, how, where would they go? Where would they go to find you? The best place would be my website, mikejackstoombos.com. Um, Can you spell that? Uh, Mike, Jack, and then the last name, S-T-O-U-M as in Mike, B as in Bob, O-S, dot com. And also, if you look on uh, on Amazon, if you search for this fine crew or the signal out of space, then you can click that link and get to the rest of my uh, the rest of my author stuff on Amazon as well. Good, and of course, you'll be able to see them when you go to writersofthefuture.com and look at volume thirty eight. You're going to see them in there with the squid is my brother, and then his will be his name will be a hot link. So you click on that; it'll take you to also to his website. Well, thank you very much. It's awesome. Fun. Thank you. I knew it was going to be a great interview, and you've proven me correct on this. And thank you for listening. Subscribe to the Writers of the Future podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The Writers of the Future podcast is available on SoundCloud, iTunes, Pocket Cast, Stitcher, Player FM, iHeart, and Spotify. We've also been syndicated on the United Public Radio Network where you can find these podcasts as well. The Writers of the Future series can be purchased wherever books are sold in the U.S., Canada, the U.K., Australia, and South Africa, and available everywhere else on Amazon. Writers and Illustrators of the Future are contests created by Elwin Hubbard to provide a means for the aspiring writer and artist to be seen and acknowledged. It is free to enter and open to new and amateur short story writers and artists of science fiction or fantasy. Again, thank you very much, Mike. Thank you.